We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. Mm. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute uh, minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. You know, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the darkened hour. Well, here we are on the 22nd, we're nearing the 22nd anniversary of the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks. And this is going to be a special episode between myself, Adam Fitzgerald, and with me today. Uh, you know, it's a very pleasure, a big pleasure for me and somebody I've grown to respect over the years when I first got to know him six years ago and saw the personal growth that he did, which I'm very uh, proud of him for such, and also has become a, a respected researcher in his own right. He's also the co-host of his own podcast, along with Darren Harvey, Beyond Ground Zero, which just initialized this year, Sean Russell. Sean, hey, listen, thanks for doing this with me. Hi, Adam. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah. Happy anniversary. And uh, what, what, do, what do you have for us uh, today? I'm interested in what you'd like to get into. Yeah, I think, you know, with so many people giving attention to, you know, the implosion of the towers, which is important in its own right. But again, once again, Sean, just like in years past, the the aspect of what led to the attacks through the intelligence services and what they knew and what they didn't know, what they shared and what they didn't share, which helped to shape foreign policy that we see uh, that we saw 25 years ago that is still happening till today, the ripple effect of this malfeasance and criminality shown by both the federal government and the intelligence services, foreign and domestic. And I figured that if we could talk about, you know, the recent history of what led to the attacks that, you know, and our foreign policy that's shaping on information and lack thereof, I figured that this would be a better way of giving you know the attention that it deserves to an audience that is not hearing much of it and you know you Sean you know very well in your own personal experience through viral media and posting uh that you know these areas are sorely mis uh, underreported yeah and here we are decades later something that continually floats across my brain is there seems to be uh, a dwindling. It's almost gone. Mm. You know, the mantra was never forget. For better or worse, that was the mantra. I think we've forgotten. I'm not seeing any activity. Uh, there's almost no news articles, even covering some of the greatest revelations that we've ever mm. come across, including this year. There isn't tremendous commentary breaking any sort of new ground everything is basically just common often inaccurate 
and very old talking points, if anything is mentioned about 9-11 today at all. Seems like what we have is, and I know I'm not the only one who thinks this, because I've heard others allude to this as well, even recently, is that this is one of the great conspiracies, and it is just like the previous generation's assassination of JFK. Everybody remembers where they were on 9-11, just like the previous generation remembers where they were when they heard Jack got shot. But what happened then, and it's happening now, it may be done. Everybody from that generation knows that there was a conspiracy. When the president was assassinated, everybody knows it's a conspiracy. And yet, 20 or so odd years later, they don't seem to care. That's the generation that watched the Iran-Contra hearings live on television. And they still think that they can vote for uh, officials that have their best interests in mind. They still think that there's some kind of difference between their political party and someone else's political party. They know that there's something very dastardly going on, and yet they don't act, and nothing about how they live changed. It's almost like they turned away in fear or horror, and they've forgotten. And that's what we see with 9-11 today. Decades later, it left the mark on a generation, and they all know that there's something completely shady about the whole ordeal. Mm. But they've moved on to other things, and they've forgotten. It's gone the way of JFK. You know, and that's what I was worried about years ago, too, that, you know, with all the disinformation out there, you know, we were just talking before we were pressing record about how they can't get rid of whatever public solid information they have, but they could surely poison the well. And they surely have done that with the help of the very people you didn't think would be uh, supporting such nonsense, which is the 9-11 truth movement. Now, this is not a condemnation of the whole movement, but you have way too many people that were concentrating on uh, the issue of what didn't or did happen at the Pentagon in Shanksville, which is still today the most divisive issue in, guard, in regards to the conversation of 9-11, and also a concentration on ground zero. Now, not to basically say that what happened at ground zero is no more important than anything else, but it's not the only thing that happened. Now, for some people, it's the holy grail, as you would say. It's the, you know, the, the grail that they worship on, because to talk about the geopolitics, to give it the respect it deserves from one truther, which I will not name, basically said to me after I gave an hour long speech to him in regards to, you know, talking about 9-11 in a context. He basically, the first thing he said to me was, well, can you simplify it? <laughs> I knew we were in trouble. And so it's a confusing topic, but it's not as confusing as you'd think. And basically, if you want conspiracy, there's plenty of it. And you want names to go along with those conspiracy. Well, here it is, right? In the past you know, year, as you mentioned, we just had the biggest revelation in all of 9-11. And it went underreported, shockingly. Now, I expect that from our meeting. I expected it from the 9-11 truth movement. I didn't expect it from alt media. And I really thought that certain people that we both know would actually give it, you know, nonstop coverage. 
And the only people that ended up covering it was NorthJersey.com, uh, also um, Gray Zone with Aaron Maté and Max Blumenthal and Russia Today. And that was it. And to me, Florida Bulldog as well, I believe. But yeah, basically, I'm sorry, no Florida, Bull, Florida Bulldog. Yeah, well, Florida no Bulldog one. is what the most consistent, the most active when it comes to 9 Most only only news organization in the whole country that talks about updated information. So I'm glad you brought that up because Dan Christensen deserves a hell of a lot of credit, and uh, you know he's a blessing. But yeah, Dan may have Dan may have broke that story actually uh, initially. Yeah, he did. He did. You're talking about the declaration of Donald C. Canastrero right. this year. That's yeah, right. that's where which I got is it. Uh, it's it's really incredible news. But no one in the uh, mainstream uh, truth movement had anything to say about it. Uh, who who do we have that that are uh, mainstream truth movement people that commented on it? Uh, Jason Burmis, I think. Did a show where yes, he brought it? Up? Yes, he did. And Richard Gage. Richard people, Gage Richard mentioned Gage. it as well. Okay, that's about two. I can't think of anyone else. That's, Only that's two, it. really. And I know. Uh, uh, very shamefully underreported story. Yeah. Really, um, pr pretty, pretty bombshell uh, commentary oh. from Canistrero, in that it, it's just the confirmation of the you know the greatest suspicions that. Many prominent uh, truth movement people, such as like John Gold, um, mm. uh, 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 we also had. Um, oh, excuse me, guys, I'm forgetting your names. Uh, was it John Duffy? Um, oh, Ray Nolowski and John Duffy and Ray Nolaselski. Uh, so basically, people had been suspicious about this link to uh, the Saudi Arabian GID and the American CIA regarding handling of the hijackers pre 9-11 and now it's like the nails in the coffin guys it's like we mm. got it figured out mm. everybody else is agreeing with you guys you have your you have your confirmation mm. about that conspiracy theory it should be the biggest news in alt media especially within the truth movement and it's basically not covered at all and i think that really does speak to this concept of how people have moved on or they don't care right. or I mean, maybe they think that they've just got it all figured out, and so information doesn't matter, or especially if it's information that conflicts with what they think is is the reality of the situation about how everything about 9-11 is a hoax. That's what you see predominantly. Mm. If you go into viral media forums to this day, basically most people, if they're people, I don't even know if I trust most of these anonymous profiles, but people have mm. comments like, Everything is a hoax and everything's fake and therefore I can't trust any information because everything is fake. So it so it means nothing. And maybe people are apathetic. They've they've lost interest. I guess a lot of stuff has happened since 9/11. There's yeah. a lot of reasons why people maybe are uh, looking at other matters. Mm -hmm. But I'm worried that just like the previous generation who they maybe have an incomplete picture about previous conspiracies think that they had those things figured out they must not have figured things out because how on earth can you have a donald trump after you already had a nixon guys you lived through all this stuff and nothing's changed mm. so they must not have figured things out back then and 
the 9-11 truth movement thinks that they had everything figured out because they won't accept new information and they won't change their views. Forgive me for being so solemn, but that's how it appears to me. No, it's a reality. It's a, re it's a sad reality that we're facing, but also, you know, to be optimistic and of all people, your, your optimism is something that I lack, but in this, in this context, there can be optimism because, you know, we've had people such as yourself and Darren Harvey and Ben and Eric from Project New American Century. The future, you know, I like better now than I did 10 years ago. You know, 10 years ago, you know, the truth movement was in full force. I mean, now those people like Christopher Bolin and Rebecca Roth and Pops and Life and Truth, you know, you don't hear them anymore. And the reason why is because basically, as you said, they can only repeat themselves before they get boring. And then, you know, nobody, everybody tunes out. People generally are suckers for the truth. And you know what? You know, people such as yourself and, you know, DJ Thurman Detonator, who is prominent in terms of posting and filmmaking, you know, they want new information. They're yearning, hey, there really is a conspiracy, but only if it's presented to them in a way that they can understand. And so I figured today, you know, not we're going to prove to you that it's not as complex as you think it is. And I'm hoping that today, you know, hopefully we can prevent it. If we can present it in a way where you basically are following along and basically could see how this event basically took place unimpeded and flawlessly. And here's the real conspiracy. It could have been stopped. And so, like I've always said, Sean, you know, with every human event in history, in order to understand the present, we have to go back in time and start with. So I figured, you know, what better way, but, you know, at the end of the Cold War, something that you yourself have talked about, you know, we talk about it even in personal context, um, and what happened was, was basically, you know, Soviet Union invades Afghanistan in 1979. And basically, uh, what happened is, well, just like what we saw in Ukraine, you know, almost coerced to a point where they basically invade, not to say that Russia itself is a innocent victim. Well, there's no innocent people here, except for the people that suffer under the cause of war. So you have Afghanistan basically a staging ground. And what the United States wanted to do was basically, you know, eliminate the threat that is a preconceived threat of, of the Soviet Union. And so what did they do? They spent billions of dollars into this CIA program called Operation Cyclone, in which um, you had a lot of Arab fundamentalists who basically came into war a little bit later and basically saw NGOs, non-government organizations, as a threat. And they didn't want to deal with them straight. So the Americans went through the very entity that they shouldn't have, the Pakistan ISI, which has a long relationship with coexisting with radical fundamentalists because 95% of the country, and especially according to some sources, most of the ISI is compromised by radical fundamentalists anyway. But nevertheless, that's what the CIA commiserates with all throughout their history. You know, the most radical, the most nefarious, the most immoral sound groups at, uh, in existence, whether it's political or apolitical. So billions of dollars are spent to the Mujahideen, Afghan and Arab. And who comes along? Well, a young Saudi named Osama bin Laden, who basically creates this organization called the Maktab al kinamat from the Arabic as the Afghan Services Bureau. And basically what they wanted to do was basically have an influx of these Arab fundamentals that were coming from all over the world. Basically, these are Salafists, Wahhabis, as they're called, basically illiterates. But they're, they're, they basically are decent fighters, not as good as the Afghans. The Afghans didn't want to work with them, but basically said, well, at least they'll die for our cause. Uh, 
And so they really were, you know, accepting in that, you know, tentative relationship with the Arabs. And so this organization grew and it kept growing because bin Laden had his father's construction company, the Saudi bin Laden group, to basically help him out with, you know, the millions of dollars that were coming through. Uh, through the organization that, you know, trickled down to the Maktab al-Kidamat, which basically saw a trickle-down effect from the CIA's Operation Cyclone. And I'm not saying that bin Laden received direct money, according to his emir of al-Qaeda later on, Dr. Ayman al-Zahiri, who wrote a book called Knights Under the Prophet's Banner, said that they never received any direct funding, and that was a West invention. And so here you have, you know, the United States, it seems unwittingly, all right. And I use that word liberally, unwittingly given money to radical fundamentalists that they're training through the ISI in terms of fighting against Soviet Union. So what happens? The end of the war in 89. And just so happens the United States leaves the country. And what happens is you have two civil wars in Afghanistan that basically killed more people than the 10 year war previously in the Soviet Union. And then you have the, the Taliban that comes from Pakistan and Mullah Omar and his group that basically, you know, replaces and tries to take control of the country and says that, you know, they want to, you know, keep Afghanistan under the Sharia law that, it, you know, that they wanted. Nothing more, nothing outside those borders. And so there's a huge fight between them and the Northern Alliance under Ahmed Shah Massoud. And so now you have a war that the United States basically uh, has no involvement with and with the Soviet Union now declining or destroyed almost and whatever fundamentalists in the Balkans are fighting against the communists for, the United States are basically just watching back. And what happens? Well, those very fundamentalists that are coming out of these you know, training camps that the ISI helped to build through the CIA program basically comes back to the very countries that they came from. And what were those countries? Oh, the United States was one. Great Britain was another. Uh, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, you know, all, I mean, uh, Iraq, Libya, Syria, all the countries that didn't have any radical fundamentalist problems now suddenly have a radical fundamentalist problem. And Sean, you basically did a, uh, to me, the best episode on your your podcast, Beyond Ground Zero, regarding the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. And so with the radical fundamentalists that were training in these training camps, like Ramzi Youssef, who was born, uh, uh, well, you know, it's he's born in um, uh, Baluchistan, but it's basically, he came from another country. And I, it, it's, he's it's, also Kuwaiti. He's also Iraq. Yes, Kuwait, right, right. Kuwait. Probably, so now he, he comes into the United States and basically through the training camps in Afghanistan, learns how to build bombs. And it just so happens that the FBI was working with an informant named Imad Salem in trying to crack a radical fundamentalist group operating in, uh, in the Al-Farouk Mosque in Brooklyn under Omar Abdel Rahman, who, by the way, just so happens to have a U.S. visa, even when he was on a terrorist watch list issued by the CIA. And so, Sean Russell, here's where you'll come in. Um, here you have the FBI, and it seems that Israeli intelligence were also monitoring this ring that was operating inside the United States. And we're talking about 1992, 93, before the bombing itself is happening. And what happens? From here, you have a buildup of Imad Salem, an informant inside this group, who basically has to leave 
because the FBI tells him that, you know, if you're not wearing a wire, you're not going to be in service to us. So he leaves. In comes Ramzi Yusuf. And Ramzi Yusuf builds the bomb that helps to destroy the North Tower basement in the um, the World Trade Center. And um, this is basically just a product of an operation through the CIA uh, in, in terms of Operation Cyclone, and as well as the intelligence services that basically shut down the case because they said this is a, the work of a lone person. But that wasn't the case, was it, Sean? Well, just, you know, one one lone uh, terrorist or, or, <laughs> or, you know, one one figure... It's definitely more complicated than just one nut job. Right. These these things typically are more complicated than that. Well, you covered a lot of ground there, Adam. Um, a lot on your plate. Starting back at uh, the end of the Arab Cold War is uh, is a fine enough place to go. I think that uh, there's the ripple effect, which goes back further. I mean, if if Western interests felt confident that they could be propping up the enemy of their enemy, which makes it their friend, really tentative ally, just like the intelligence services in Pakistan, for example, that you could you could prop up a force to bleed your opponent and make them just use up their resources, basically uh, directly contributed to the collapse of the uh, USSR. So it's it seems effective. And I think that there could have been uh, a, a trend of an opinion about how that type of tactic or strategy, greater strategy, is effective. Because after the world wars, we were already seeing what led up to that in carving up the Middle East into a bunch of basically conflicting states that are not drawn upon their traditional tribal borders or geographical borders. And like each state is basically set up to war with itself, but they're also set up to war with each other. And we had already seen basically the British utilizing tribal forces uh, to uh, defeat the Ottomans. That was uh, the other great empire to fall before the Soviets. So take the Arab revolt as sort of an example of uh, even before Operation Cyclone. Mm. But it's using just the enemy of your enemy, and it's not using your friend. And I think that speaks to what might be a very nefarious game that world powers use today. You already brought up Ukraine. What we see in the world today could be just the next best way that we do it since mutually assured destruction, which is you use non-state actors like privateers in the revolutionary days to, to bleed and to harass and even sometimes defeat an opponent. Your pirate is gonna take out the British ships or you know, you have, uh, you've got tribesmen in the Middle East that uh, they're motivated primarily off of some kind of religious motivation or they have yeah. like, uh, orders issue and uh they're not really your friend they don't even like you mm. you don't and you don't like or respect them like speaking about like how the west would view things and how uh the the east would view things in return they're not even really friends but sometimes it could be laid out on 
you know, what Brzezinski called the grand chessboard and that you could be making moves and right. where we arrived at today after a couple of generations of like pretext terrorism in the Middle East, but it also affected Europe and even the West is we're right back at Russia. We took a little detour, but now we're back on the border, propping up basically right wing militias. I mean, it, people today draw comparisons to the Mujahideen with what's happening right now regarding this brinkmanship and tension between uh, modern Russia and the West. But it, but it also looks like the types of things that CIA did in Central America back in the 80s. Again, it's, it's right-wing militants. And uh, it's, it's, it's uh, the enemy of your enemy. Because mm. I don't believe that the Americans like these people that are serving a greater goal that aligns with their interests. Um, Gobuddin Ekmetyar in, in the Middle East was, was like, I think he received the most yes. benefit from CIA during Cyclone, which, as you mentioned, was, you know, like the giant operation, like billions of dollars, like the biggest, uh, it was covert for a time, but like the biggest operation the CIA would ever done. But they were arming the most despicable and nefarious uh, modern day pirates. And I guess there's a great big debate about whether whether they thought that it could ever bite them in the ass afterward, because apparently it did, because terrorism came to the United States not long after. Yes, the Soviets had been basically crippled and eventually collapsed, but it was not very long at all before this Frankenstein's monster was attacking its creator and we had in the early 1990s the thing that had been the dread of Europe and the Middle East for actually a couple of decades and Americans were just blissfully ignorant of it because it hadn't come to their door eventually it did and that, that's where you have like the first attack on World Trade Center for example which is all connected to weird spooky connections like the mm -hmm. blind shake uh, I mean, never mind that we have like the greatest revelations in 9-11 about Khalid al-Madar and Nawaf al-Hazmi, red flag terrorists, known terrorists that are apparently hands off because they're being handled as assets, mm -hmm. getting into the United States and then t partaking in uh, the greatest terror attack in history, 9-11. Well, shoot, going back to 1993, like these goons are apparently commiserating with the blind shake and CIA lets him into the country. And he's a problem, like he's a known problem. Basically the Egyptians wanted to get rid of him. And uh, a lot of the tracing of uh, the origins of what became Al Qaeda has to do with, you know, these guys are problems in their own states and this, the intelligence services there don't want them around. And, you know, the, the Egyptians are gonna make these, uh, these guys go to prison and kick them out of the country. They, they all follow the jihad and from all around the Ummah, they gather up in Afghanistan and, you know, become, this uh, uh, punji pit for the Soviets. But it comes back and bites the Americans too. And you, so you have to wonder, like they, they are grand strategists and certainly the people that are involved in these matters are far more intelligent than I am. Can they, can they foresee this? You know, the big talking point about 9-11 from, from our officials is that they couldn't have seen this coming. 
That's that's how they skirt the issues. They always oh, we didn't know this would happen. It's demonstrably false because we know what happened after the 1993 World Trade Center attack was that Ramzi Yosef and his accomplices continued to make plots against the Americans. And that information was relayed to the Americans by like 1995 that an attack that shockingly resembles what would become 9-11 just years later was already in the works and there were sleeper cells in the United States. They were ready to pull the trigger. They'd already figured everything out. It's just that the uh, guy in charge of it almost got apprehended in the Philippines. Ramzi Yosef had to flee to Pakistan. Pakistan, again, where bin Laden would hide out for years. The intelligence services are playing a dirty game. Even some of their own whistleblowers admit to this. Mm -hmm. uh, you can just look back uh, in, in years past uh, when one of the early whistleblowers from CIA, John Stockwell, was talking about the mm. horrendous things that the agency does. They use really, really awful people to do stuff that sort of serves a goal. I suppose like if someone's going to make like a moral case about it, they, they, could, they could feel better about themselves and sleep better at night. Oh, well, I, I didn't murder people or rape people or whatever it was just my proxies that did it and so i guess the main point i'm making here is that because of mutually assured destruction you know you don't want to trigger something hot mm. it's it's much it's much safer if you let a terrorist does what he does what he does and and you didn't do it you can wash your hands of it or you can also play a maybe more challenging game and I think this is where different powers one up each other, and it leads to the confusion that we face today of trying to figure out something like 9-11, is then you, you also play the blame game. You also say, oh, it was the Libyans or it was the mm. Iraqis. Right? Mm. Then, it, then there's this whole nother level of it where you're trying to put blame on somebody. We're all kind of playing around with the same proxies. At least we try to. And your hands are clean if you can get away with it. If you can spray him in Al-Magrahi or whatever, you can make it Gaddafi's fault. Uh, or or just uh, not even do it effectively and just bomb the crap out of somebody first and then afterward say, ah, crap, you know, we, uh, okay, we, we had that one wrong. But Iraq's been destroyed, so, you know, no time for that moving forward. It's... Um, it's a very grim situation, but all, all of this is absent in the 9-11 truth movement. Um, I don't encounter truthers that talk about the 1980s and how historically pretext terrorism could work. And they've got it at least flimsy when they talk about how Al-Qaeda is directly a mm. CIA arm. CIA's never admitted to it. And hey, don't get me wrong, like, they, they admit to certain things. They don't admit to certain things. It's really hard to tell because they're spooks and they have a history of doing really awful things. But you have to play Occam's razor, right? You got to sort of like slice it down. I'm not convinced that bin Laden was acting on behalf directly of the Americans because he wouldn't have needed to. He didn't have the direct motivation or the financial requirements to get funding from the Americans because he was independently wealthy and he was independently motivated because he's inspired by Saeed Kutu, you know, and he's, and he's, he's, he's got his ear to, um, 
the uh, uh, Palestinian um, who also founded the Maktab. What's his name, Adam? Oh, Abdullah uh, Yusuf Azam. Azam. And, and so like he's independently motivated. Thank you. Right. He's independently motivated. Um, he doesn't need to be doing the bidding of CIA. And if we're to take CIA's word for it, I've always got to take it with a grain of salt. But they said that, look, he didn't want to work with us is basically what CIA said. They said, look, he didn't work with us, but it wasn't for lack of trying. Right, right. And I mean, I guess what the, what that all boils down to is was 9-11 a Gobuddin Ekmejar job? It wasn't. It was Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, which is a whole nother can of worms. Right. Because while we have a lot of history about the bin Laden family, and certainly they have some very curious connections, there's not a lot that we can really say for all the long podcasts that we have about the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, et cetera, Bojinka plot, et cetera. What do we really know about KSM is like the real question. And that's a question that never gets floated by the conspiracy theorists. They're, they don't realize it, but they're keeping the conversation just as limited as the official narrative pushers want it to be. Because they're playing off of this premise of who, who is this OBL guy? How is it that OBL did 9-11? They're asking the wrong question. They should be talking about how is it that KSM did 9-11? And who is KSM? They don't ask that question. So very abstract uh, response to uh, a topic you floated there, Adam, but you covered like decades of world history. And so I wanted to just kick you back my thoughts on that. Um, it's, uh, it's spooky and it's suspicious, the whole lot of it. But playing Occam's razor, I think it's just as likely that the Americans just got bit by their own attack dog than it is the Americans intended to inflict a wound on itself. I'm not convinced of that. I'm not team self-inflicted wound. Not yet. Well, let me piggyback on a point that you made about the CIA's involvement with bin Laden and why it you don't need CIA involvement with bin Laden. Saul Alinsky once said, the action is in the reaction. Mm -hmm. And so just like with every other fundamentalist of the Salafi nature, they do have an invigorating motive to attack the United States. And the State Department, who lied about this after the 9-11 attacks, well, they hate us for our freedoms. Well, that's not the case. And just like I said uh, in an interview I did, I, and I forgot the name of the person um, about a couple of months ago, Cheetash actually interviewed me. And basically I said, you know, of all the years of studying uh, criminal psychology, the Arab fundamentalists are very unique in that they will tell you why they're attacking you. And they'll do it before even attacking you. And if you take a look at what Ramzi you said in his sentencing and what bin Laden has been saying throughout the 90s, uh, has nothing to do with America being a Christian nation or that we are atheists has everything to do with foreign policy. And this lines up well with what I wanted to talk about as well. Foreign policy regarding two major countries, Saudi Arabia and Israel. Now, if we go back, uh, one of the earliest foreign policy papers is something that you're quite familiar with, which is the Oded Yunan plan which the argument of the paper basically suggests that they're witnessing a new epoch in history without precedent, which required both the development of a fresh perspective and an operation strategy to implement it, in which the Arab world that is circling Israel 
that would become the last safe haven for Jews to seek refuge in. And that the notion that Pan-Arabism was the threat, that they would actually have a blueprint for countries like Egypt, Jordan, the West Bank, Lebanon, Iraq. Now, remember, these are all the countries that didn't have a fundamentalist problem. And it wasn't until this paper came out, which, by the way, is conspiracy, fringe conspiracy to a lot of people in the media. Well, this is actually a foreign policy paper, and it comes from an individual who worked into the area of Sharon as a former advisor named Yanan, and Yanan himself, Oded Yanan. And basically, he was a former senior official with the Israeli Foreign Ministry, and also later on became a journalist for the Jerusalem Post. And the paper goes on to say that they need a fracturing of the Arab community in which they would implement uh, governments that would be acquiescing to Israel's views or to have these dictators destroyed with a fundamentalist problem that they didn't have before. And later on, what we saw afterwards, a couple of years later, with the Wolfowitz Doctrine from the Undersecretary of Defense, Paul Wolfowitz, in the Bush administration, where it was the unofficial name given to the, with the defense planning guidance of 1994, also known as the Wolfowitz Doctrine, which basically talked about the U.S. status in the world as the only remaining superpower with the fall of the Soviet Union. And what happened was they needed Iraq to basically become the country destroyed and to have different sections of the country governed under a government that would acquiesce to the United States. And to a lot of people, Sean, this is all a conspiracy to basically destroy the countries that would basically be an ally to us if we had a rational and moral government. But because we saw the rise of the neoconservatives and the rise of the dual U.S.-Israeli citizens in Congress that would later shape the Bush administration, people like Dick Cheney or Donna Rumsfeld, later Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice, they would have their own nicknames as the Vulcans later on. But the real foreign policy advisors like Richard Pearl and Douglas Fife and Paul Wolfowitz that would go on to shape the narrative that Iraq is the greatest threat to the United States. Meanwhile, countries like Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Pakistan, that helped shape the fundamentalist Al-Qaeda and later the Islamic State, groups like Abu Sayyaf or groups like Jemaah Islamiyah in Indonesia, groups that didn't exist because of this Operation, uh, Operation Cyclone. And now with this neglect from the United States government, this neglect from the intelligence services that made these groups grow and react to the foreign policy of the United States, Israel, and Saudi Arabia, which gave rise to the Gulf War and the invasion of Iraq, in which bin Laden even states throughout the mid-90s that this was a reason why he wanted to attack the United States. And also the Palestinian problem in Israel, which was facilitated by the United States, ignoring the Palestinian problem, as well as the 500,000 people that died, men, women, and children, sick, elderly, through the Oil for Food program in Iraq in the first Gulf War. So, Sean, I know that's a lot again on your plate. I just want to get your thoughts about how foreign policy shapes 
the radical fundamentalist problem, which is basically reacting. And I would say that I'm not saying that what bin Laden or Ramzi Yusuf was doing was right. But now I give a new perspective, like now I know why they attacked us in the first place. Would that be a little bit too much or uh, is there something I'm missing? Oh, excuse me, I was on mute. That's exactly right. And that's exactly the conversation that the truth movement should really be starting with. Because I think that we get ahead of ourselves mm. with these conspiracy theories. I think we jump to conclusions often. And I think we get ahead of ourselves in defining the question wrong from the get-go. I think we're asking the wrong question from the get-go. And you exactly illustrated the point that I try to make when I can actually uh, have a like real conversation with someone and not have to get over hurdles like how the airplanes were suspicious to actually get to the meat of what this matter is. And that exactly is illustrated by what you just pointed to. Like, for example, there's the problem of public perception. There's the problem of being lied to about 9-11. There's the problem of the public were misled, led into an unjust war, and it only spiraled out of control. Well, what was one of those main memes that infected the Americans and largely uh, the coalition partners and you know pretty much the, the Western, like with air quotes, world? Well, that was this whole concept about how the 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 Ummah, the Islamic world, hates Western progress and modernity. That it that it that it just does not like what the Christian world has done. It, that that they just don't like blue jeans or television or uh, music with stringed instruments or like you name it. Right? They they just they hate all of that and. That's not what Ramzi Yosef said. That's not even what bin Laden said, regardless of how exactly connected bin Laden is to something like a 9-11. Look, bin Laden issued the fatwas before there was ever a 9-11, mm. before, before there was ever a uh, worst terrorist attack in history and a truth movement and a f deeply flawed commission and a fallout with the wars and a war on terror. Before any of that, look, bin Laden said, hey, you guys are offending some sensibilities. Um, you're exploiting my part of the world and you're treating us like stepping stones, uh, like we're some kind of um, obstacle to you, like we're some kind of stumbling block that you're going to turn into a cornerstone to build something off of and it offends our sensibilities. We don't like that you're trying to use the, the holiest site to... You know, I'm not religious, I'm an atheist, but to them, the, you, we don't like that you want to launch a bunch of fighter jets from our holiest point on earth just to kill us. They don't like that. And of course, the unwavering support for Israel, and they have their own set of problems like the Palestinians. So there's no mystery about why someone like a Ramzi Yosef does what he does when he bombs World Trade Center in 1993. He talked at length about it. Because you guys are hypocrites. It's not because you wear blue jeans. It's because you bomb people with horrible, uh, like, basically the, the same things that you would accuse an enemy 
of doing, like using, I don't know, chemical or biological weapons or, you know, basically despicable, illegal uh, war crimes. Well, you commit yourselves. You're hypocrites and and you also are uh, killing us. They, they feel attacked. And uh, when bin Laden tells you three times, he warned him. If if he's already shook his stick at the snake three times, he's permitted to kill the snake, basically. Mm. And uh, that's what happened. It was um, maybe ignorance, maybe pride. The Western powers didn't take it seriously, which is quite peculiar because apparently we were trying to get our fingers into it. Not just the Americans, it's also, you know, the, the British, the French, you know, like the imper the Western imperial powers had kind of been playing around with this issue for a while. Maybe they thought that it's easy because like, you know, the, the British had basically ruled the world at one point and they thought that they could just step on brown people infinitely and it would just never, it would mm. never run out of gas on, on, you know, they could just keep doing that. Whatever, the Middle East, uh, Egypt, you know, whatever. Uh, you're just going to be India or Hong Kong. You know, we're just, we're just going to take you and we're, you're, you're not going to do nothing about it. You're going to learn to love us. And uh, certain people, eventually, they, they became terrorists. You know, you got into the really, really key point of the strategy. For whatever their motivations the strategy that was implemented is where we arrived at. And I love that you that you laid out some of those key, uh, they're like mutations of each other. Um, I already alluded to Zbig Brzezinski, but I don't think what we're playing around with here is exactly the Brzezinski plan. I think it's as you pointed to, I think it's the non-plan. And this uh, strategy of, Iraq, you know, the operations that the Americans held uh, it took several years, but eventually uh, Iraq was taken out. Now, the reason I think that we have some mutation going on is because actually, if we're just pointing to like dual citizens and like basically uh, Israeli firsters in the Bush administration, well, the Israelis kind of wanted Iran to be taken out. That's kind of always what they wanted. So settling for Iraq would have been a little bit of a concession on their part. They actually didn't really want Iraq, but apparently everybody could sort of agree that it lined up well enough. And so I see it as being sort of a uh, compromise by all these parties because we've got like the Americans, we've got the Saudis, we've got the Israelis, like probably the Pakistanis to a degree. Everybody's kind of in the mix here and everybody has their own certain agenda and their own certain goals, but there's like a convergence and that's the perfect storm that is 9-11. It doesn't happen unless the certain, the certain uh, prerequisites are lined out. The stars align, boy, they sure did. It was a perfect storm. The alignment of the policy of containment because we have always been interested in boxing in the communists, either eliminating them or surrounding them. And well, getting involved in the Middle East puts you right there on one of the important border lines, the Russians, we see it today. And 
it's just like, you know, you've got to uh, fortify the Pacific, for example. So there's a certain uh, American interest in getting involved in the Arab world. The big driver is going to be the Saudis and the Israelis. And that's why I'm always looking at the Middle East. Uh, that's why I'm not an inside job guy. I think the Americans are partaking in it, but I don't think the Americans are implementing it. And I want to try to talk through some of these strategies that you alluded to. And that's why I have this position. What it looks like is the clean break strategy. It doesn't look like Brzezinski's, you know, it it looks like clean break. And what is clean break? Well, it's Oded Yunan White. It's it's a mutation of Oded Yunan. And it's to basically deal with the fact that ever since ever since Balfour, uh the Arab world has been really, really upset about what is basically a settler colonial project on their doorstep. And there's a lot of uh, unchecked aggression and there's, you know, the Israelis' own versions of their own heinous crimes, just like the Americans commit. And the Saudis have kind of a pass because they control the oil reserves and they don't like a uh, Saddam Hussein right next to them playing around in the oil market and they don't like him threatening their border they don't like the fact that saddam hussein is like creating the most powerful army in the western world in modern times like it's he's out of control and he's not uh he's not subservient to our religious perspective he's mm -hmm. more of a nationalist he's not an islamist so there's a conflict there and I mean, really talking about, uh, you know, Iraqi pretexts, uh, 1993, 9-11 uh, and the fallout from it. Well, that's Arab nationalism, as I alluded to in uh, some of the Beyond Ground Zero shows. It's like the most heinous crime. Uh, if you're going to piss people off in the Middle East, I suppose one way you could do it is to be the communist Russians. That's one way to piss them off. And I think you can make him even more enraged if you're an Arab nationalist, because apparently now you've got not only the Saudi Arabians, but you've also got the Israelis that don't want that. And the Israelis don't like the Arab nationalists because it means that the Arab world might actually get their act together and they can only fight off the uh, the Arab Republic so many times. Like they already knew that it was a close call in 1973. Look, the Israelis... They beat the Arabs multiple times, but even they knew they had to do much, much better. So considering that after the Yom Kippur War is when Saddam Hussein starts to ramp up Iraq and turn it into a military power, it's also when the Israelis are thinking about ways that they can defeat the Arabs if the Arabs get even more powerful because they felt it was a close call then. They even had to strike first in previous Arab-Israeli wars to get the element of surprise and thus victory they knew that there had to be other ways of dealing with it. And so thus you have the clean break strategy. It's from the Ode Yanan plan. And then you got America thrown into the mix because there's nobody more powerful than the Americans. And as you alluded to, finally, with the W. Bush administration, there was a lot of uh, interests in basically uh, following that inclination that was what the Israelis wanted, which was to eliminate their enemies. Because I mean, they're, they're all on their own out there. The, the Arabs are going to kill them. They have to do something. Uh, 
so many Arab states have made it like clear policy that they hate Israel and they want to destroy it. So they have to do something. And so, well, the big brother is America. And the Americans, by the time you've got like a W. Bush administration, is swarming with neocons, mm. which it's a great irony. You know, the W. Bush administration is where you see like the it, it's just off the charts neocons there there's a lot of like ultranationalist war hawks that aren't necessarily like zionists they're they're just sort of like war profiteers and and uh and ultranationalists but you've got a lot of basically zionists and they're going to defend israel to you know to uh to the end because uh, of like religious point of view and uh basically uh identitarianism uh they have a lot uh they have a lot of stake there but it's the fact that if you consider that W. Bush's father thought that the neocons were insane, it's really it's a, it's quite it's quite peculiar and interesting to consider that what you have with the W. Bush is basically like he's basically right on board with the Zionists, but his father wasn't. Uh, H.W. thought that the neocons he called them the crazies in the basement, right. and so after a Bill Clinton administration it almost seemed like the crazies had escaped the basement and were maybe running the asylum. So that's my, again, abstract answer to a very broad topic and regarding things that uh, probably should be talked about more in the truth movement. I think that's the problem that we have today is that there's no context shown in regards to a lead up to a 9-11 or 93 and that the context is there. I mean, this is everything that we're discussing right now is not something that's speculative. This is recorded history. So, you know, the truth movement, for example, I hate to pick on it, but they always want a connection to show that, oh, 9 uh, 11 is an inside job. Now, I, I join with you with the, I hate the term inside job because most of the people that probably had specifics lead up to 9 11 were outside. That's Israel and Saudi Arabia through the intelligence services. And not to lose sight about the intelligence services and their in their monitoring of Al-Qaeda, for example, because according to certain people within the Bush administration and also to the leadership of the CIA, was that there was a lack of information. But I'm about to show you that there wasn't. In fact, there was an overwhelming amount. And this is the real conspiracy of 9-11, is that the, the information that was there and this is not talking about specifics because that's the only thing that's missing. But just to show you how invested they were in regards to Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. Well, I like to go back to a, a, a conversation I had with the chief of station of Alex Station, Michael Shoy, who I had on the show. And basically, he states that they were knowing of Bin Laden as far back as 1992, something I have alluded to, but I had no proof. And so here you have the CIA interest in Bin Laden as early as 92. Could have been earlier, much before, but let's start from there. With him living in the Sudan and with the CIA and the NSA basically listening to phone calls that they were using satellite phones. So fast forward to 1996. He goes back to Afghanistan after being ousted by the Sudanese government under Hassan al-Turabi, under pressure, I mean, uh, under President Omar Bashir, who basically was under pressure from sanctions of the United States. So bin Laden returns back to the genesis of Afghanistan. But it, it was an incident, not related to anything that was happening in New York. 
an individual by the name uh, Zia Khalil, who has connections with Al-Qaeda, basically was monitored by the FBI for his connections with Hamas, nothing more. And it just so happens he was buying a satellite phone. The FBI knew this through a storefront in, in Long Island called, I think, uh, Ogara Satellites was the name of the store. And satellites back then, they were a lot big money. And they were, you know, there's huge phones that the Miami Vice would use, as you can see, these huge satellite phones, right? So, but they were very expensive. And the FBI basically told the, the NSA, National Security Agency, if they could actually uh, crack the phone because uh, they wanted to know what numbers were calling from it. And it just so happens that the phone was decrypted, meaning that the NSA could basically intercept calls that were coming from it or whoever they were calling to. But the phone didn't stop there. It actually went to an associate in Virginia named Zia uh, Khalid Al-Fawaz, who was actually an Al-Qaeda head of the London office that was basically acting as a spokesman for Al-Qaeda based in London. But it just so happens he was in Virginia. That phone then went to Torbor, Afghanistan. And it just so happens that the FBI landed on, incidentally, a gold mine right at their doorstep. But it wasn't the FBI. It was the NSA, the one agency hardly anyone ever talks about. And so here began the operation of listening to phone calls from bin Laden to a house in Yemen. And it just so happens that this house was owned by an associate of bin Laden from the Afghanistan days named Ahmed al-Hada, who's an associate. Well, who's this person? No seemingly big issue, but it was what began as the most surveilled house in the world starting in 96. But not to lose sight of this, because you also brought up an incident that has a lot of interest with, with uh, the 9-11 attacks, and I think is the genesis of 9-11, and this is the Bajinka plot. And just to you know give a little bit of history, the Bajinka plot was actually co-authored by two individuals, two people that you named, Zia, uh, Ramzi Youssef, the author of the bomb used in the night three World Trade Center bombing, and his uncle, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Now, at this point, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is a nobody, but it just so happens the FBI knew about Khalid Sheikh Mohammed through an investigation that he sent a $5,000 or $2,000 MoneyGram ticket to Mohammed Salome, who just so happens received this and used this in the operation. So there's one FBI agent named Frank Pellegrino who says, I'm going to find out where, who this guy is. And it just so happens they said, oh, it's a waste of time. Nobody knows who this guy is. So he starts trying to monitor Khalid Sheikh Mohammed all around the world. And New York Times actually ran an article that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was, you know, traveling all throughout the Philippines. And just so happens he made a trip to Israel, of all places, I think in 96 or 97. Um, incidentally enough, and I'm not saying that, you know, I don't know who met him there, why he traveled there. It didn't explain. So we'll just leave it at that. Nevertheless. Here's an operation co-authored by these two men and associates like Wally Kahneman Shah and Abdullah Kimarad. And what is the Bajika plot? Bajika plot basically was an international transnational plot where Ramzi Yusuf was going to build 12 bombs hidden in Timex watches uh, using a combination of uh, nitroglycerin and fertilizer. And he learned these trades to the training camps in Afghanistan, which was run by the ISI through the CIA's Operation Cyclone program, just to give you a little rundown. So here they have this operation about putting all these watches on 12 airliners that were traveling from the United States and Southeast Asia. 
and they, they would all explode over the Pacific one minute apart. But that wasn't it. There was also another part of that plot where they would assassinate the U.S. President Bill Clinton. And it just so happens that his security detail was too much. So they replaced him with the assassination of Pope John Paul II. He was visiting the Philippines. The issue was, was that they were going to dress as priests and have bombs in these bags and just leave them right when the motorcade will come and they will explode and kill Pope John Paul II. Well, Abdul Hakim Arad is captured and basically he is beaten and tortured, but basically he was given a reprieve. He's visited by the colonel of the Philippine police, Rodolfo Mendoza, who offers him McDonald's. And before he eats it, he goes, you got to tell me about what's going on. And it was here that Abdul Hamid talked about the Pajika plot, but also that there was a hidden part of the Pajika plot and that there were sleeper cells inside the United States awaiting orders to hijack 10 planes and have them cr crash all over the intercontinental United States. Uh, in, um, and the names of these buildings were later named in the report. I've posted the PDFs for this. Um, the Pajinka plot reports by the Philippines police is of public knowledge. And named in the plot was the Golden Gate Bridge, the Sears Tower, the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, the Capitol, the White House. We're talking about 1995, as you would say. Okay, this is six years prior to 9-11. And so the Pajinka plot, the jig is up. Now the FBI gets a hold of the, of the, 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 uh, uh, the report from the Philippines police. And according to the, the then director, Louis Free, he basically didn't do much of anything with it. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to play a video regarding um, Rodolfo Mendoza, in which he talks about the um, the Pachinka plot. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to um, I'm going to I'm going to share the screen, but with sound so that everyone could hear it. And here he is. And this is the only interview that I know of on record where he talks with uh, a reporter from the Associated Press. And this is weeks after 9-11. Listen to what he has to say. He's looking at the report there. Saying uh, an airplane being uh, crashed into the World Trade uh, Center immediately caused a flashback to informations I obtained in 1995. And I, and I told that they have done it. So, I was really terrified, to be honest, and uh, I don't know what to say. And I, I uh, woke up my wife and told him that, see, I know that uh, they will be doing the, this, but I don't know when. And I have to, and I have to visualize, analyze deeply the debriefing information provided by Murad. But when we discuss his pilot training and other training of some Arab nationals 
in the U.S., I have reasons to believe that that plan during that time is already in effect and is existing. They are in the stage of preparation. And they knew back in 95, 96 that this was going to be the case, that planes were now being subjected to terrorism on the security and lack thereof. The Philippine government during that time allowed the full cooperations with the United States insofar as international cooperation against terrorism. And uh, I know that we have passed that information to our uh, American counterpart. Important uh, lessons, um, I think. They just didn't act on it. It could have possibly delayed it more because uh, you cannot stop uh, a fanatical group. Maybe you can delay their actions. Maybe before doing uh, their actions, they have to be neutralized. What I mean is uh, if uh, there is really a serious uh, initiative to investigate this information, what caused uh, afterwards is possibly a delay or possibly neutralizing the people who are supposed to implement the plan. And so, all right, here, here we have another issue regarding intelligence, being closely monitoring these fundamentalists. It's not, it's not like, um, you know, they create these terrorists and they just create them with the, the advent of attacking the United States. No, what we're trying to show is, is that they already have the motivation to attack the United States. And not only that, I'm willing to pr proposition that the intelligence service had enough information at their disposal, whether they can act on the information and intercept these people. Now, going back to the Yemen hub. So now the CIA and the NSA get involved with the monitoring of this house in Yemen owned by Ahmed al Hada, And thus begins a five-year signals intelligence operation regarding this Yemen hub which basically acted as a network of Al-Qaeda communication throughout the world. Now, for example, why would they need this house? So if there's an Al-Qaeda operative in Egypt or in Saudi Arabia, where they don't have the protections like the United States does when it comes to radical fundamentals using phones, what they'll do is they'll pass a message to this house in Yemen, which is not being protected by, which is not being monitored by the Yemeni government because they have their own problems regarding fundamentalists in the intelligence services as well. But also, at the same time, you have this worldwide network of Al-Qaeda people, you know, talking about what? The Yankees or, you know, whatever. No, they're talking about operations. They're talking about operations that would affect the United States, Israel, and Saudi Arabia, foreign policy or uh, reaction to it, terrorist operations. The only thing missing are specifics and what they talk about in these phones, something that we no one ever talks about. And so here we have Sean an overwhelming number of intelligence services. And God knows what Israel was doing. We don't know at this point. But what we do know through the public record is that the NSA, the CIA, were listening to this house in Yemen and bin Laden's satellite phones. And God knows what they had collected all this time. And so, Sean, here we have a number of agencies who would later claim that they didn't have information I would submit to you that they had an overwhelming amount of information that they could have acted on. What do you think? Well, we could probably 
have to just rest on the fact that we don't know for sure regarding did they know. I think you basically have, have, have said that in the past as well. But what it does do is it immediately destroys Condi Rice's whole point about how the failure to prevent 9-11 was a failure of imagination. Uh. It, it, you can throw that right out. No longer can anybody say they didn't see this coming. Because as relayed there by Rodolfo Mendoza, the details of a plot which is shockingly similar to 9-11 were known to the American authorities, even FBI. Mind you, this isn't like this kind of thing that was like withheld by CIA or NSA. It wasn't like this kind of thing that didn't make it to the domestic security services. FBI even knew. So the possibility of a 9-11 is not something that they can just sit back and say, hey, look, we didn't see this coming. Exactly what they said on the phones, that's another. There's some dispute about exactly when KSM comes in contact with bin Laden. It might not be until something like 1997. So they probably still had some time to get some information. But you have to wonder, like, was the planes operation discussed during all those years? Somewhat playing devil's advocate here. I don't know. We don't know what they said on the phones. But they were paying close attention to the parties that were involved. You know, it's like a main topic. I'm glad that you picked these topics, by the way. These are like these these should be like the key talking points of the truth. Mm. These are really like the things that we got to be digging at because there's something there and we need to know more. I don't need to hear another person tell me that they want the 85 cameras because it was a plane. We've established that. You follow me? What we don't know is what was exactly said over those phone calls. And CIA and NSA are withholding their information. And we already know now, after uh, basically uh, the 28 pages and the Encore files and the Catastro memo, mm -hmm. like, look, CIA was playing around with Midar and Haas at least, at least. And we're not 100% sure who the Israelis were playing around with, right? Mm -hmm. So they knew something and they're covering it up. Because probably because they're trying to fall back on this lie that was their first their first skirt the issue thing was, hey, we just didn't know that this kind of thing could happen. They're probably avoiding any sort of like real concrete information because then it would destroy that lie further. Mm. You know, thank goodness for the truth movement because they think that none of this stuff before 9-11 exists. Yeah. Um, the Malaysia summit meeting, the fact that uh, you know, the KSM network in the Philippines previously had all been uncovered. Hey, you know what's really disturbing? I don't remember. I mean, I was young at the time. I was a teenager, basically. But I don't remember people talking about sleeper cells in the United States before. Mm. Now. I don't think that that was a concern. We had We had no care or worry about Islamic fundamentalist terrorism in the United States. It was always something that happened over there. And then Chuck Norris would go over there and fight the bad guys. It wasn't something that happened here. Whereas what we know is, at least according to Mendoza, and the conspiracy theorists can sort of say, well, hey, why is Mendoza uh, telling me the official story, right? How come Mendoza didn't tell me about Operation Northwoods? Look, there's no reason for Mendoza to be giving you some kind of story. 
he hmm. told you what he discovered is is Rodolfo Mendoza a neocon? Like, is he feeding you some kind of disinformation? Good point. He told you that there's sleeper cells in the United States. They're ready to do something that looks exactly like 9-11, mm -hmm. or at least what 9-11 probably potentially could have been, because we know that there was additional planes targeted. There was other possibly even land attacks. And there's a bunch of unanswered questions about potentially land attacks like truck bombs. It's already been told to the Americans. They know that something like a 9-11 is ready to happen, but it wasn't giant news. Where was the scare about sleeper cells in the United States in 1996? Maybe we were too worried about neo-Nazis or something at the time, but we weren't concerned about these Arab terrorists. We don't know what they said on the phones, but we know that the CIA has got fingerprints all over Midar and Hazmi. And we know that Khalid al-Midar is the husband of Hoda al-Hada, who's the daughter of Ahmed al-Hada right. at the Yemen hub. Yemen, incidentally, I believe that's where bin Laden was born, right? Isn't that's he not actually right. a Saudi by birth? He's Yemeni. His right. father was Yemeni. Uh, in Yemen, where all the information is moving through. And the CIA and NSA have two pieces of the puzzle each. They got a piece each, but we don't know what was there. So, I mean, gosh, guys, maybe some of these uh, some of these people that have money to spend on uh, you know 9/11 awareness, maybe they could be trying to get uh, try to get the phone calls or transcripts mm. from the Yemen hub in instead of uh, digging at the 85 cameras, which even if you got the cameras, it probably doesn't show what you want to see. It's interesting, right? How we get we get really locked into certain things in the conspiracy theory and truth movement. We get really locked into certain things and then we don't pay any attention to the other stuff. You know, everybody talks about Northwoods like it's something that is uh, special or rare. It's not. It's really common. You can hear all about Northwoods on like the biggest podcast on earth, the Joe Rogan show. He'll tell you all about Northwoods again and again and again. It's not special. It's not hidden. Nobody talks about Bojinka. You know, Mendoza probably thought when he heard the news about 9-11, he was like, oh my God, they did Bojinka. It's probably what he thought when it happened. Yeah. Because we know that that's what Ida Fariskal thought. She was one of the national police who was involved when they apprehended Murad mm -hmm. and the interrogation and they got the laptop and they found all of the information about, oh my God, what are these guys doing? Fariskal has said in an interview which was reported about how that was what she thought it was. When she got the news, it was like late at night in the Philippines when 9-11 yep. happened. But she woke up out of bed and somebody told her, look at the TV. And she said, oh my God, Bojinka. She didn't say, oh, my God, Northwoods. Good point. Good point. <laughs> if, if any of these conspiracy theorists knew about what was going on before 9-11, hey, admittedly, I didn't. I only found out about it afterward because I was starting to ask questions about, hey, could bin Laden have done this? That's the only reason I found it out because I was like, hey, maybe bin Laden didn't do it. Okay, well, who's KSM? And then from there, backtrack mm -hmm. to the stuff that was going on that nobody talked about back in 1996. At least as far as I could tell, I must have been in the wrong circles because I don't remember it being a big deal. Nobody talked about sleeper cells then. They were going to hit World Trade Center and Mendoza told the FBI that. We're going to hit Trade Center and the Pentagon. 
exactly 9-11, and they knew it in 1995, 1996. The information was there. That's my thoughts. And this is, like you said, this is the epicenter of the attacks. And what's missing is that, yes, you know, we had information at disposal where we could have had, um, you know, stricter security measures to, say, immigration naturalization services regarding certain countries like Saudi Arabia or Pakistan, or by, you know, enforcing stricter security measures at the aviation industry. That didn't happen, even with the report released to the FBI. And Adam, could I interject? I think you just hit something great that I'd love to comment on. Sure, yeah. Stricter measures. Now, FBI said at the time, I believe it was in their annual um, summary, in their annual report, this document is available from their reading room, the 1996 recap. They said that they were going to implement some additional, like they were going to address the airline or transportation specifically, the transportation security measures. I have to wonder about that because they had the information about Bojinka and they said they were going to do something about transportation security in 1996. Did they, did they hit the mark? Did they do anything? I'd like to know. They said they were going to, but the the key point that I wanted to interject here was, you know, they said the same thing after Pan Am 103. That was over a decade before 9-11. They had a lot of chances to deal with this aviation terror. Look, they basically said, hey, we're not going to let another Pan Am happen. It's really weird. That Bojinka almost happened if it weren't for the people in the Philippines. It wasn't the Americans that stopped it. We're what? And and 9-11 happened. Yeah. There shouldn't have been, there probably shouldn't have been a World Trade Center bombing after Pan Am 102. <laughs> they probably should have figured this stuff out. So that was my quick thought there on the point you were raising about, uh, you know, the security measures and, and uh, you know, the FBI being aware of it. And let's and let's piggyback off that because get, again, the truth movement likes to dismiss the commission as nothing more than a pack of lies. The commission actually addresses this, this issue that you raised, Sean, which I'm glad you brought up. Let's let's see it. Watching for something happening overseas. Let me let me deal into that a little bit. Bajinka happens in '95. FAA sent somebody over to Manila. Are you familiar with that? Are you familiar with the FAA sending a representative over to Manila? Yes. And, and what did they come back and say? What did, that, what did that person report after going over to Manila and finding out that a member of Al-Qaeda was going to hijack 12 American airplanes in a suicide fashion? I've got to get both words in here because you all say, geez, I didn't think they could commit suicide. There were 10 attacks by Al-Qaeda against the United States from 1992 to 2001, and nine of them were suicide. We knew by then that bin Laden was going to come after the United States. So what did the guy report when he came back in 1995? What did he tell you? And what was your response to it? Well, my recollection, and I do not have specific recollection of what was said, but my general recollection was that the threat at that time and continued up through September 11 was really directed outside the borders of the United States. In 1998, after the East African Embassy bombing Mr. Belger, it was in the newspaper that the, that the United States of America federal government arrested two suspects that were in the United States. One in, one in California, one in, in Texas. 
Why would you reach that conclusion that they were only going to attack outside the United States? The conclusion I reached, sir, was based on the, the, the intelligence information that was given to me. I mean, I can't be any more... I'm talking about stuff that's reported in the newspaper. It doesn't I, come from CIA. That's right out of the darn newspaper. I, 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 hopefully, I, I don't know, sir. I, I don't remember reading that. You're personally. in luck. My time has expired. And, and there you have it. Now, the person that was arrested in California, as we both know, was Ali Muhammad. The person that was arrested in Texas was actually uh, Wadi al-Hajj, who was accountant for bin Laden that was uh, convicted for his role in the 90s Africa bombs later. Shortly after all this remarkable revelation, Sean, comes the advent of something that was unprecedented in the agency at the Central Intelligence Agency. They created a uh, a center, and this was uh, authored by David Cohen, who at the time was the CIA's director of operations. He created what was known as the Bin Laden Issue Station. It was codenamed Alex Station because this was named after the son of the chief of station, the original chief of station, Michael Scheuer. What David Cohen wanted to do was basically try out a virtual station on an individual or organization. And it just so happens that this organization or an individual they were concentrating on was Osama bin Laden, who was now making the rounds right around this period as being a threat to American interests. Again, this is just showing you that well before 9-11, that bin Laden was considered not only a threat, but that the intelligence services knew this. And what we're trying to show you, me and Sean are trying to show you, is that the conspiracy is that this was not known. As Sean said, uh, Condoleezza Rice says at the famous inquiry and in 9-11 Commission that they had no idea they were going to use planes as weapons. Well, there's a reason why we're talking about it, is that they knew back in 95, 96. And there you have the 9-11 Commission, which the 9-11 Truth Movement likes to say that it's all wrong, basically addressing the subject to the acting commissioner of the FAA, that you had this information five years prior to the attacks. And so what was the uh, uh, modus operandi of the bin Laden issue station? Well, they had a number of different agencies working hand-to-hand -hand in the naivety of belief was that everybody was going to work together, collect all the information, signals, intelligence, human intelligence, open source, private source, okay? That they were going to share all information all around the world collected by these agencies. And that would basically stop bin Laden in his tracks or to destroy him or kill him. All right. The station opens in January of 96. Michael Scheuer is chosen as the chief of station and he hires Alfred Ambikowski, a CIA analyst, Michelle Lane Casey, another analyst, and to act as the deputy director of the station, Tom Wilshire. There are other analysts, I, you know, I can't, I don't know the names of these people, but there was about 20 people. Later on, during just before 9-11, it grew to about 50 employees. And at the same time, after 9-11, it grew to about 200 to about approximately 300. It's not known because it's classified. Nevertheless, here you have a issue station that basically knows about the Yemen hub knows about bin Laden in Afghanistan. You have the NSA, the CIA, the FBI, all working together, collecting tons of information. This is not something that they lack thereof, Sean. We're trying to show you what a real conspiracy. Well, it starts right here with the 
domestic, I'm not even talking about foreign intelligence, just keeping it domestically. We'll get to that in a minute. But here you have a bunch of agencies working hand in glove, collecting information. Now, the problem begins later where Scheuer, who is so uh, combative with the FBI, especially with the head of the counterterrorism center, John O'Neill. You know, he gives that infamous speech at the Senate hearing where he says that the only good thing about 9-11 was that the World Trade Center collapsed on John O'Neill. It just stunned. It just goes to show you the mind of these people at the CIA, right? Later on, we find out Alfred Ampikowski is nicknamed the Queen of Torture. Nevertheless, you have a bunch of analysts working at the station. Now, this is surprising because according to certain people in the CIA under the counter document, this is unprecedented. The information not comes from analysts because there's only two types of officers at the CIA, analysts and field agents. But when it comes to operations, it's the field agents on the ground collecting the information, which is then handed to analysts. But here you have a bunch of analysts running the field agents on the ground. So in other words, it's the analyst job to discern what information they act on, what information is shared. And what we already know, Sean, me and you, is that information was not gleefully shared with anybody. And that the NSA, who was running their own operation, listening to the Yemen hub, you have the CIA building a listening station because the NSA wouldn't share information, all of it, with the CIA regarding what they heard on the phones. And Troy actually has a big argument with the NSA's signal directorate, Barbara McNamara, in which McNamara says that if you basically uncover this operation, we will sue you to up the yin-yang. Shoyer backs down. Now, Sean, I, I would submit to you, the only thing missing at this point is specifics. We don't know whether 9-11 was talked about in these homes. We don't know. I mean, I, I would probably make a good argument. It probably was. But who knows? But nobody talks about these issues. Nobody brings this up, as you say, nobody in the truth movement anyway. But here you have, Sean, a great case to show that the intelligence services, many years prior to 9-11, could have had stopped, not just 9-11, but the 1980s Africa bombings, the U.S.'s coal bombing in 2000, if the operations were talked about on these phones. Well, Scheuer himself would comment that they had accumulated a great wealth of information about mm -hmm. al-Qaeda. He's even at one point said that they had the most information yeah. about al-Qaeda. So, I mean, take that for what it's worth. That must mean that they had a lot of details. Because what that means is more information on al-Qaeda than any terrorist organization ever. There's a lot of terror organizations before mm -hmm. al-Qaeda is on the map. So, that means that you know more about them than you know about Hezbollah, for example. Mm -hmm. That's got to be a lot of information. Mm. And and they had the satellite phone, and they were they were listening from Madagascar to the Yemen hub. Like, right? They've got a lot of details, and uh, and already by the time uh, you get up to you know, the doorstep of nine eleven, the intelligence services are trying to basically flip some hijackers. Like so, like they're right on top of it. And Shorter, to his credit, says that he he basically, if he'd had it his way, he would have taken Bin Laden out. And 
I suppose you maybe could cut the CIA some slack in that they really just, they are an instrument of the administration. And if Bill Clinton doesn't want to deal with bin Laden, then he doesn't get dealt with. Since apparently they had many opportunities to just eliminate this whole thing. And uh, Scheuer was vocally uh, upset about that. Mm -hmm. uh, and years later, he would comment about it. Uh, he, he was definitely uh, perturbed by the administration uh, not neutralizing bin Laden. Mm. So you have to start to wonder about, you know, not only are these agencies like possibly playing a dirty game, but who the hell do we keep voting for in the executive branch? <laughs> yeah. They're supposed to be leaders and I don't like the term leader, but they're supposed to represent the Americans and man, who knows what they represent anymore. Apparently they're not going to stop a nine 11 before. They're going to lie about it afterward. Blame a Saddam Hussein after the fact. It's really, really, it's, it's way gnarlier than what the conspiracy theorists try to make. The conspiracy theorists try to make 9-11. This, it's like, at the, it's like, we can say that we're making it simpler, but in a way, like it's actually gnarlier than what the conspiracy theorists try mm. to make. 9 mm. Sort of simpler. And that it just makes more real world sense to say, oh, yeah, well, you got you got to they let it happen. They they knew something was coming and they knew that they could uh, they could use it and they let it happen. Like that's like sort of a way to make it simpler than uh, they uh, they hoaxed all this stuff and they have all these crisis actors and they switched a bunch of airplanes and all this stuff like all this hollywood machinations but in the same time is that it's simpler it's like actually kind of more gross and, and and creepy what maybe they actually were doing look to the fact that they have their own bin laden issue station and they still don't stop a 9-11 like, shoot they created their own office for it this would have been like around the time that bin Laden is making his intention clear. He's mm -hmm. not just getting shot by Russians in Afghanistan. He's made it clear that, oh, I'm going to do something bigger than just get shot four times in Afghanistan. I'm going to I'm not just going to be plinking at Russians. I'm actually going to do something significant and the world will know my name. Like he's issuing fatwas by the time that they're like listening to all of it. Bin Laden is being very out, outspoken. He's like, yeah, okay, the Americans, I'm going to warn you approximately two to three times, and then I'm going to wage war on you. They know that it's coming. They have to. I guess really what it comes down to is like, do they misinterpret what's going on? Like, again, devil's advocate. Mm -hmm. Do they really grasp the gravity of this? Like, do they not understand what they're listening to? Is it that they don't speak Arabic or Udu or Farsi? You're like, do they do they not get it? Do do they do they have some kind of uh, uh, limitation in their appreciation for what they're observing? Like maybe they've never seen an elephant before and they're trying to describe an elephant, right? Maybe. But Bin Laden issue station, it's devoted to dealing with Bin Laden and his group Al Qaeda. 
And that's after he's no longer just a, a, a Mujahideen or he's no longer just as Shoyer put it again, uh, a Saudi nor do well. He's, he's something special, mm. but they fumble it again. So do they keep fumbling things so that something can happen? We don't know until we can listen to the phone calls, I think. Right. Because all we know is that they're observing it and they don't take action. That's all you can prove. You can say, okay, well, they're watching this thing, but they don't stop it. And it goes through stages and they don't stop it and they don't stop it. You don't know. But it looks really weird. And again, going back to what we know from Canistrero and, you know, we've been seeing the, the weird things that are buried in the Encore files. There's a lot of cover up and there's definitely back in the early days, like the commission days, there's a lot of outright lying hmm. and, and the false pretext for war against an opponent that didn't do the attack and like all this stuff. They're just lying for forever. They won't address it nowadays. It'd be great if if uh, if somebody could just like comment. Like, are there officials that want to just talk about this? Maybe they could talk talk me through it. Tell me what all that stuff really meant. Maybe they could talk me down off the edge of being a conspiracy theorist if I could understand it better. But it looks really grimy. So this is just one more thing that the truth movement won't touch because they don't believe in hijackers because they think that everything is hoaxed and staged and it's just like i'll tell them i'll say i'll say to people that are political activists or even conspiracy theorists they don't know what alex station is and i'm trying to tell them about this stuff and they've never heard of it like to begin with but they're also on the page of well i don't believe that hijackers could ever be hijackers they they don't seem to have ever studied the history of terrorism i think it's uh it's as you say it's it's simpler but in a way, almost more complicated, right? So that's my thoughts. Well, yeah, I, I would have to submit that uh, they make it complicated because to go back on lies, they have to remember about you know what they've learned and and it basically it's convoluted. So there would be a, a mixture of of complexity in that. But but again, with the influx of information that is gathered by the intelligence services. It's commiserated to what they call a, a threat daily metrics report. Now, this is reported to the principals meetings. Now, what, what's a principal meeting? It's a meeting of the leaders of the intelligence community and the War Department, the Pentagon, where every two weeks, every month, they would sit and sit with the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, and talk about the current threat to the United States and national security interests around the world. And so with the information getting from the CIA, from the CIA, and the NSA, and the FBI, and God knows who else. You have these, you know, matrix reports that were discussed under the Clinton administration and National Security Advisor Sandy Berger. And throughout the what we know that, that we know of, Sean, is that Clinton actually was given plans to kill Bin Laden, uh, in which he rejected. Uh, and this is coming from the CIA, basically. CIA basically did try to kill bin Laden or early as 1992, 93 in the Sudan. He tried again in 96, 97 by having, you know, uh, maybe renditioned back to the United States where they could prosecute him and whatnot, because at this point they had an informant in Al-Qaeda named Jamal al who was giving information about Al-Qaeda hierarchy. So now we have an awash of information. Clinton doesn't act on it. 
And this causes a huge concern, not just with the intelligence service, but a growing number of neocons that are actually operating in secret in trying to get Clinton out of office. And back in 1997, they create a think tank called the Project for New American Century, which is actually created under founders Robert Kagan and William Crystal, which basically uh, consisted of a number of neocons that basically would be given high-level positions in the Bush administration. People like William Crystal, Bruce Jackson, Robert Kagan, Douglas Fight, Mark Gershon, Randy Schumann, Gary Schmidt, Dolph Zakheim, uh, um, uh, uh, oh, I'm forgetting, Richard Pearl. So John Bolton was another, and he's still around these days. Elliot Abrams, I'm, you know, these are all huge names. And these would all later dictate foreign policy after 9-11, which basically talked about rebuilding America's defenses and also forced regime change in Iraq. Now, in 1998, it was Crystal and Kagan that put out a, a published article in the New York Times and later on in the Weekly Standard pressuring Clinton to invade Iraq, and he didn't budge. Same way that bin Laden tried to pressure Clinton to invade Afghanistan in a revisitation of Russia invading Afghanistan when he bombed the embassies in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. And according to bin Laden himself, he would admit to his son Hamza later on that he respected Clinton because Clinton did not react by invading Afghanistan, which he wanted to do. And thus, here you have a think tank that basically is calling for regime change in Iraq. You have bin Laden who's calling for an invasion of Afghanistan with the US military to draw them out, to bleed them economically, which he later relates in an article in a uh, interview in 1998 with Peter Bergen. And basically states that they want to bleed the United States military because they couldn't beat them militarily. And so here you have a neocon think tank that basically is begging for bin Laden to be correct. And bin Laden is welcoming this, you know, this with open arms. But we need a new president. And so we have a wag the dog situation. Clinton is under a scandal with Monica Lewinsky. And then we have the election. Fast forward the election, which was under Al Gore and President George, uh, George W. Bush, the doofus son of the H.W. Bush who is no friend to Israel, by the way. But needless to say, it didn't need to be because we have a bunch of uh, dual Israeli citizens that are basically waiting in the wings for a administrative change. And through some nefarious voting procedures, I say, Sean, we see George Bush become the president of the United States. And what does he do? Does he get the threat matrix reports from Richard Clark, who served as the counterterrorism czar under the Clinton and Bush administrations? No, he's ignored. And so the threat of Iraq and the threat of China now becomes the precedence. Meanwhile, you have the CIA, you have the NSA, you have the FBI, who are blaring their red lights, saying that bin Laden is now upping the game 
Not only are they threats across, but there are threats inside the United States. Again, to the truth movement, this is underreported because you don't talk about these issues, as Sean said, because you don't believe in hijackers. And so awash with threat reports, awash with information that bin Laden has now threatened the United States inside the United States. And not only that, the issue of airplanes does come up. The threats to aviation security comes from none other than information provided to by Ahmed Rassam, who is part of an operation called the Millennium Operation. But we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves because there was an issue that needs to be raised because this is where it begins, the 9-11 pre-war information. So there's a phone call listened to by the NSA in the Yemen in December of 99 by a person named Khalad. They don't know who this person is, but he's in Malaysia. And he talks to a person named Khalid. Khalid, who lives at the Yemen house. This person would later be known to the NSA as Khalid al-Midar. Now, to them, it means nothing. So Khalid tells Khalid to tell Nawaf who the NSA finds out as Nawaf al-Hadmi and his brother Salim al-Hadmi to come to a meeting in Malaysia that would be chaired by a number of high-ranking al-Qaeda officials as well as officials from an al-Qaeda affiliate in Indonesia, the Jemaah Islamiyah. The CIA finds out because the CIA has a mole inside the NSA's Yemen hub operation. So the CIA is the lead agency when it comes to foreign matters. So they take over this operation. But the NSA collects all the information. And so the CIA begins their operation on Khalid al-Midar and They go to this meeting. They take pictures of the men, Khalid, Khalid al-Midar. Nawaf al-Hazmi, Salim al-Hazmi. They leave the meeting on January 8th of 2000 and go to Bangkok, where they rent a hotel. And this is one story. There are a number, but this is one prominent story. They get a hotel. They leave their room. And the CIA basically manages to get inside this hotel room and take pictures of their passports. On their passports are U.S. dual U.S. visas. They are coming to the United States. The CIA knows this because they actually find out that not only are they going to the United States, but they're going to New York City. But they weren't going there. CIA follows them from Bangkok and then all of a sudden loses track of two men who are at an Al-Qaeda Heights Summit meeting who are connected to this Yemen hub and later find out that Khalid who is the mastermind of the USS coal bombing, this connection suddenly ends. Because according to the new CIA's chief of station, Richard Blee, who replaces Scheuer, he tells the principals' meetings that they lost track of them in Bangkok. Later on, we find out that is a lie. So they are received inside the United States. The FBI seized a cable regarding Khalid al-Midar and al-Hazmi's passports and U.S. visas. They know these men are al-Qaeda. 
They know they were coming from an Al-Qaeda meeting in Malaysia. They know they're a threat to the United States. It is no longer a jurisdiction of the CIA, Sean. It's a jurisdiction of the FBI. However, the person who read that cable, Doug Miller, who is from New York, and Mark Rossini, who is also a tutelage under John O'Neill of the counterterrorism center in New York, they draft the cable. Doug Miller does. Trying to warn Washington, D.C., the headquarters of the FBI, about these two men to start monitoring operations. However, Sean, and I want to get your thoughts. The CIA has to get approved. Have, the FBI has to get approved from the CIA because it's CIA information. Thinking that they would. However, Tom Wilshire, the deputy director of CIA's Bin Laden issue station, tells his analyst, who's in charge of the, the monitoring of the Yemen hub, Michelle Ann Casey, to tell them not to send this information. Please hold off per Wilshire is written in the draft email. Days later, nothing is sent. Marco Cini then goes to Michelle and Casey and says, what's the holdup on Doug's email? And she says this, it is not an FBI matter. We think the next attack is in Southeast Asia. You are not to share this information with the FBI. We will let you know when the FBI knows. Now, Sean, what does that say to you? And I know that's a lot on your plate. Old per Wilshire is, is the verbiage, isn't it? Mm. So at least you can put a name to it. A lot of the conspiracy theories that float around in the infosphere, um, you can't put a name to it. You just have to uh, place a uh, shadowy boogeyman figure as the puppeteer and you can't really call somebody into the courtroom. So at least with some of these stories, we can identify the people who maybe somebody should just talk to them. I mean, whether it's like in some kind of like legal, like, uh, you know, pressure or just an interview, um, maybe they can explain it. But like I've said before in this conversation, even, if they can explain it to me, that'd be terrific because it just keeps looking so bad. I would really like to know an explanation that addresses all of these components. And, you know, credit to, uh, you know, like this, uh, the joint inquiry, like the senators and who, like Carl Levin, for example, who would, who would like put some pressure on some of these individuals and, you know, ask some kind of difficult questions, you know, back in those days folks didn't have as much information at their disposal. They maybe could have asked some way better questions in, in the commission and uh, JIS days compared to what we know today. Tragically, there probably will never be another opportunity to apply these things. You also mentioned about the Bush administration because again, this is like, hey, it's, it's up, it's up to George W. Bush to stop this stuff at this point. Because like, this is right on the doorstep of 9/11. He's the new guy. What Clinton didn't do is no longer an issue. Mm. Now it's all on the cowboy. Well, there's like the presidential daily briefs that are pretty explicit. There's two of them that are really stand out. One of them is uh, Bin Laden preparing to hijack commercial airliners and other attacks. Yes. Another is Bin Laden determined to strike in the United States. Mm -hmm. Pretty explicit. 
this skirt in the issue of we think it's in Southeast Asia business, I don't buy it, or at least not based on not based on the way that they've presented it to me. If they can give me some more information about why that is the case, I'm really interested to hear it. I'm not buying it currently, though. Because even if they're going to try to say that, oh, it's Bojinka, and that means that KSM and accomplices are going to blow up some airplanes from uh, the Philippines or from you know other places in Asia over the Pacific, and it has nothing to do with Americans, it's just going to be Japan Airlines or you know somebody else. Even if they're trying to say that, well, they're still ignoring the other half of Bochinka. They're still ignoring the other half, which is, hey, guess what? There's guys in the United States, and they're just waiting for the call. And they're going to hit the United States. They got their eyes on World Trade Center and the Pentagon, et cetera. Something that comes to mind is the way that conspiracy theorists in the 9-11 truth movement like to imagine things, or I should say the way that they envision things, the way that they're uh, compiling this information. Because every conspiracy theorist from the 9-11 truth movement I talk to, they've got a really different point of view than I do. Yeah. But the way that they've assembled their point of view is it's George W. Bush, it's Dick Cheney, it's Donald Rumsfeld. Like These are some of the names that are like at the top of their list. Nobody ever mentions Tom Wilshire. You get the point? Well, something that's rather interesting is the... Like top three guys, it's basically like Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld. There's pretty much like the guys that the truth movement is putting it all on. It's peculiar. Those three guys aren't neocons. I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> but what you got is you got the Bush dynasty. They're not Zionists, period. And then you got Dick Cheney. He's not a neocon. And even Donald Rumsfeld doesn't really self-identify as a neocon. And it's the Project for New American Century and uh, you know the Office of Special Plans and like these other characters that sort of dodge the ire of the truth movement by large. They're not really in the sights of the truth movement. And as we've already sort of you know, brought to attention in this conversation, we have to wonder if those characters are maybe more deserving of some heavier scrutiny and they're not on the top of the list for the truth movement. So the doorstep of 9-11, it's the millennium plot, like you already mentioned. Hmm. It's like, how does it get more nutty than already uh, 1993 World Trade Attack, Bojinka, how can we make this any more nutty? Uh, uh, multiple bin Laden fatwas, right? Like uh, the, the coal bombing, you know, the embassy bombings in Africa. Like it doesn't get any nuttier than this. And then we're going to also add, oh yeah, and also there's the millennium bomb plot <laughs> right on the doorstep of 9-11 that Ahmed Rassam, who's got connections with the same guys and shoot, he's got connections with the airport that Midar and Hazmi come through. And it's like, Come on now. There's so much going on. And Midar and Hosmi, the handled assets, they just happen to hang out at Abdesutter Sheikh's house. It's who's I'm, an FBI informed. Right. I'm gonna need them to walk me through it. <laughs> it's too much. It's too much. It's too close to home, Adam. It's too close to home. Yeah, and I would agree. I mean, uh what what we wanted to do is show 
that these radical fundamentalists are not acting, you know, without this air of of confidence that the intelligence service just managed to lose them. That's not the case. And here we have, we're showing you uh, through primary source material and through the commissions themselves that they knew the intelligence services were monitoring these people many years prior. The warning signs were already there. So let's fast forward, Sean. Let's fast forward. So here you have Khalid Al-Madani Wapahabi, known to the intelligence service inside the United States. Doesn't tell nobody. Same time, they're coming to the United States. Saudi intelligence, we find out later, are helping them, providing financial and logistical support. Individuals such as Omar Al-Bayoumi, Fahad Al-Tamari, Osama Basnan, and others. Mu'ashad Al-Jara later, who we find out much later, who has a very prominent figure in all this. Now, <laughs> on the other side of the uh, country, the Northeast, we have members of what they call as the Hamburg cell. These would be the people that were coming from Germany and Spain and Egypt. That would be the pilot hijackers of what was known as the planes operation managed by Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed actually uh, holds an interview with Yoshri Fuda immediately after the attacks in Pakistan before he's captured and admits with Ramzi Ben Ashib, that's who he's with, admits to a, a BBC, an Al Jazeera reporter, Yoshri Fuda who meets them in a safe house in Karachi, Pakistan, and tells them, yes, we are the architects of 9-11. And this is how we did it. And so these young men with no connections, and by the way, we're going to be talking about one, which may have a bigger conspiracy of all, which you truthers never mention. <laughs> I'll let you deal with that, Sean. Have fun with that one. Um, happens to just come out of nowhere and meet, not through like Lokosha Nosha, where you have to build up and meet the captain. And no, they go right and meet the hierarchy of Al-Qaeda. Bin Laden, Dr. Ahmed al-Swahiri, the emir, second emir, and the military commander, Abu Hafsa Masri, known as Muhammad Atef. And not only meet them, but go through a two-week course involving a special operation proposed to them by Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who talks about attacking the United States, not through bombs, but by hijacking the airplanes. Because Khalid Sheikh Mohammed tells Bin Laden in 99 that he has a great idea. And that is to hijack 10 planes and have them crash all over the intercontinental United States. Well, that it came from? It came from Bajinka Plot. Not only that, Bin Laden rejects him. Too much. Too many. Commits a second time. Says, what about, you know, hijacking four planes? That Bin Laden tells Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. And therefore, the 9-11 plot is born. Now, I would submit to you that through this operation, the CIA is begging for an informant inside Al-Qaeda currently. They couldn't get one. So they met, George Tenet, the DCI, tasks the newly minted manager of the counterterrorism center, Cover Black, to come up with a plan to basically get an informant inside Al-Qaeda. He fails. Couldn't do it. 99, 2000. The Hamburg cell come to the United States, through Florida. Mohammed Atta, Mohammed al-Shehi, and Ziad Jarrah. And what do they do? Well, they go to flight schools in Florida, in New York, in New Jersey. They travel throughout the United States. But not only that, we find out later that they were not being surveilled by the Saudis, but by the Israelis through a great report in its own right, which the 9-11 Truth Movement, Sean, doesn't talk about. 
and they love to blame Israel for everything. It's called the Gerald Shea Memorandum. I'm currently doing a chapter reading of it. And which it shows a tremendous operation of Israelis using moving front companies, these little moving companies, as well as selling art all throughout the Southwest and Northeast, monitoring the FBI, the DEA, other government areas, as well as living next to the Hamburg cell and Khalid the out west. So God knows what they collected along the matter. So here you have foreign and domestic intelligence monitoring everybody involved with the 9-11 operation, Sean. And like I said, what we may have is an informant inside the plane's operation. And you mentioned this in a show run by Billy Bay Valentine, but I'm going to let you take it away. What am I talking about? Well, this is the aspect of 9-11 that, like, never mind a Building 7 or um, or a Tim Osman. Like, th hmm. this is the component that the commission doesn't incorporate, that there's actually reason for a conspiracy theorist to have some questions about you know i think that 9-11 is it's a clusterfuck Ugh. it's a bit of a dog pile there's there's multiple parties there's multiple interests everybody's pointing the finger at everybody else mm. trying trying to throw the next guy under the bus you know like cia and fbi and etc well if the saudis had their hands on like Midar and Hazmi, right? You know, because you've because because you've got like you've got the Bandar to uh, Basnan to Bayumi, you, you've got like a connection there, but they don't have their hands on everybody. They, they got a couple of the guys, and and they got the muscle hijackers. Presumably, they're aware of the fifteen Saudis, the goons. This goes to what is the most eye-opening aspect of 9-11. Mm. And it's the least talked about in the truth movement. It's the hijackers. It was the greatest revelation for me. Because look, the, the greatest news in 9-11 has to do with the Canistero document, which confirms the suspicions of, of Duffy and Gold and Nowashelsky and others, Dawson, who had already been saying for years, hey, look, we think that the Saudis are doing something They've got their hands on some of these guys. There, there could be assets or even agents. We think that there's something going on with the Saudis because, like, just look at Prince Bandar, right? Like, he's something of a neocon himself over there in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. We, we think there's something going on. Well, now we know it. Yes. GID's got their hands on these guys. And the CIA is also following them, in particular, Midar and Hazmi. Except... They don't have the Hamburg cell. They, they don't have Atta, Jara. You know, Al-Shehi exists in this conversation, but he's not as interesting. He's Atta's good friend. Well, the peculiar bit is the Gerald Shea memo, as you allude to. It, it provides a new angle. It, there, there's another component of this that's getting completely left out of the official story. Look, the official story addresses Building 7. 
The official story addresses who is Bin Laden. Like all of that stuff basically gets talked about, but nothing gets said mm. about the largest foreign intelligence operation mm. on U.S. soil in documented history. There has never been anything like it. And it's Israeli intelligence. And it just happens to be on the doorstep of 9-11. And people who are associated with Israeli signals intelligence, people who are even on counterintelligence watch lists, if, if Vince Canestrero is to be believed, and I'll take him with a grain of salt, but he says that some of these guys were even known. The Israelis had a spy ring, a huge continental spy ring on the doorstep of 9-11, and they just happened to be right on top of the 9-11 hijackers? It's a weird coincidence that, hey, that's what the commission doesn't touch. That's what even the joint inquiry doesn't play with. You know, I'm a big proponent of working with the undefended positions of the official story. I don't like to try to force against something that is really well armored. In general, I like to try to find out, hey, did George Tennant lie? I like to try to like work with what they've given me and see if I can make something out of it. I'm pretty confident that there's a fib, right? So I'm gonna say like, all right, well, you, Condi Rice says that it couldn't have happened because they didn't know that it could have happened. I'm gonna work with what they've given me that they are not defending. But this is a tough one because this one, it's absent. Does that mean that it's being defended? I don't know. There is not a documentation that shows us that what we have with the Americans and the Saudis working in, in coordination exists between the Americans and the Israelis. But what we have is a foreign intelligence operation on the US soil. And again, just like what's going on with the CIA and GID, it's illegal. It's not supposed to be happening. Mm -hmm. But according to what they've told us, the Americans didn't know about it. Now, interestingly, FBI was becoming aware of this thing. It's a bunch of basically Israeli-owned and operated moving companies and also art students, or like they basically masqueraded as art students, people who were uh, young Israelis in America uh, selling their kitschy chintzy artwork to DEA officers. Um, it's, it's, it's happening right on the map as the 9-11 hijackers pre-9-11. In, in the doorstep of 9-11, what you have is this weird, biggest firing ever of Israelis. It's not addressed by anybody. So some people in the truth movement talk about it. But something that I've noticed is that typically, if you encounter the phrase Israeli art students, like with air quotes, usually what people are talking about is a really avant-garde, admittedly very bizarre art project that happened in New York involving artists that were doing a, a weird like expression of art at World Trade Center. And I, you know what? I got to admit, it's pretty weird. Mm, but 
they're a group from Austria and they were photographed and they put a book out with their pictures in it and you can read their names and you can see their faces like just playing devil's advocate what the truth movement is calling Israeli art students apparently are Austrians maybe they're Jewish but they're apparently not Israelis and it's like there's a distraction. Mm. It's like there's a misdirection where, guys, this is how misdirection works. If you're going to get somebody to look somewhere, you don't get them to look away from something. You get them to look towards something. That's how misdirection actually practically functions. I don't know for sure if somebody intends it to be this way, but the outcome is the 9-11 truth movement is looking at a bunch of Austrians doing a really weird art project. They printed in a book at World Trade Center. It's bizarre as all get out, guys. I'm not going to lie. But nobody in the truth movement knows about the Gerald Shea memorandum, which is your whole point here. And hey, guys, full disclosure, I didn't know about the Shea memo. Adam, you told me about the Shea memo years ago. I didn't know about it. None of them know about it. They don't talk about it. They're talking about the wrong art students. Mm. If I try to tell people that, there's a lot of resistance. And it's very, very disheartening. This whole matter is disheartening mm. because it's all right there. So the Israelis, for whatever purpose, it's not clear. We, it's not clear what their purpose really was. Mm. But they were doing what is basically an illegal intelligence operation. It's the biggest in history. Hundreds of young Israelis are involved in this uh, art student spy ring that were basically spying on government offices, even in their private residences. Something peculiar. But to make it even more bizarre, not just that all you have to do is read the Gerald Shea memo or follow Adam's uh, video series that he's producing on his channels, uh, covering the information and walking you through it. You'll see that Israeli intelligence was right up on, incidentally, the 9-11 hijackers. All of them, not just Khalid Amidar and Nawaf Hosni. And that's the mind-blowing aspect of this. Apparently, CIA and GID had a piece of the puzzle, just like apparently uh, NSA had a piece of the puzzle, mm -hmm. and apparently FBI had a piece of the puzzle, CIA had a piece of the puzzle. It gets really, really creepy when you realize that actually Israeli intelligence had the whole thing. And so to make it even weirder, there's another Israeli intelligence connection on the doorstep of 9-11, and that's the moving companies. Now, that's not the art students, but it's Israeli-owned and operated moving companies, and there's actually many of them. There's like a dozen of these on the East Coast, from Florida, New York, New Jersey. The famous one is Urban Moving Systems. I don't need to cover a lot of ground on that. I hope that the listening audience are familiar with Urban Moving Systems. There's others too, though, and that's really bizarre because... FBI was discovering that there was all this white collar crime going on with Israeli owned and operated moving companies. And it was a huge investigation on the doorstep of 
involving moving companies. And one of them just happened to be Urban Moving Systems. They were already on FBI's radar before 9-11. The owner and operator, Dominic Souter, was already like a guy that they were looking at. He owed money. He actually escaped uh, money that he owed. And like he abandoned his properties and stuff. And like basically he just fled. To, to my knowledge, he's never answered for the money, that he owed, which was, I believe, thousands and thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's other Israeli moving companies. And with just with Urban Moving Systems and a couple of their others that are in particularly very bizarre, like White Glove, Classic International, Arrow, there's a couple of that are like really bizarre, but in particular... Urban Moving Systems was determined to most likely be a front for Israeli intelligence. And they're also right on top of 9-11. Like to the point where they're like possibly even following the hijackers to the airport. It's really weird. They're close to the Shanksville crash site. They're uh, in position to view the attack on World Trade Center, etc. So none of this is in, in the commission. It's not in the joint inquiry. And it only exists within a sort of I don't, I, guys, I want to be nice here. There's a, there's, there's an aspect of the 9-11 truth movement that is a little bit unpalatable. And they talk about this stuff, but they get the details wrong often. And I don't think they're very good purveyors of the information. We can make it even more weird, though. And this is the final one. So if Israeli intelligence is all over 9-11, pre-9-11, right on the doorstep of 9-11, they're like basically living in the same towns and like within... I mean, practically shouting distance of 9-11 hijackers. You just look at the appendices of the Shea memo. Uh, it, sh- it shows that the, this art ring that was spying on DEA and who knows what other things was going on with them, they happened to have been right in the same places as 9-11 hijackers through a timeline and geographically. Well, if we're already considering that the bizarre thing is that the intelligence services from places like the United States, Saudi Arabia, and even Israel, have their eyes and even possibly even their hands right on the 9-11 terrorist hijacker. The 9-11 truth movement just don't believe exists. They couldn't name more than two of them and they don't know anything about any of them. Well, there's one of them that definitely never gets brought up. And to me, this is like the most mind-blowing thing about 9 not going to lie, this is the thing about 9-11 that absolutely knocked my socks off. To this day, I can't get over it. And that's in the Hamburg cell, you've got bizarre figures like Muhammad Atta. Hey, look, you know, uh, Hopsicker reported about how Muhammad Atta like, is not congruent with who he's supposed to be. Like there, there's an illusion about how possibly Atta has a body double or something. Or, like there's somebody pretending to be Atta. The Atta's peculiar, as I mentioned in the conversation that I just had the other day with some people about how, you know, um, Muhammad Atta's father is the, it's, it's the only instance that we can really confirm something. He's reporting that Atta called him like within 48 hours after 9-11, implying that Atta didn't die on 9-11. His father is saying that he spoke to his son afterward, like within a day or two. And then he also says the weird thing, like just, uh, I mean, of, of his own accord, he says, oh, yeah. And by the way, uh, this is an intelligence operation. This is Mossad is what he says. he says. This is Mossad. And they do this kind of thing often. He says that they killed my son. Well, another member 
of the Hamburg cell is Marwan Al-Shehi. He's, uh, he's from the Emirates, I believe, and he's uh, Atta's good friend. He's also not like uh, a bum from Saudi Arabia, like the muscle. And then you've got Ramzi bin Al-Shib, uh, like um, Zacharias Massawi. He's like considered a potential 20th hijacker. Couldn't get into the United States. Stayed over in Germany. So he's out. They got Hani Hanjour as a last minute replacement who had already been in the United States since like the 1990s. Whole other conversation. And then the final official hijacker is Ziad Jara. And so these are the official hijacker pilots of Nina. And the only two that probably truth movers ever mentioned my name, the truth movement will talk about Muhammad Atta, mm -hmm. who they always confuse with Satam al-Saskami. And, and they'll also talk about Hani Hanjur. No. Almost never will they mention Ziad Jar. And it was one of the early discoveries that I came across Credit to Ryan Dawson, who reported this quite a lot back in the early days. Um, I started to look at Ziad Jara, and guys, there's reports from the press uh, in Lebanon about how in around 2008, a relative of Ziad Jara is basically arrested in Lebanon on suspicion of being a spy. An Israeli spy, Ali Jara, and his brother Yosef are picked up in Lebanon as being Israeli spies. This is after 9-11. But the importance of this is that they'd been doing it for 25 years. Hmm. This goes back before 9-11. This goes back into the heyday of Hezbollah. They were spying on Hezbollah and contributed, at least Ali did, contributed to the assassination of... Uh, Muhammad, uh, excuse me, what's his name? Imam Munia, the leader of Hezbollah at the time. Mm -hmm. And so, like, th that's high level. There's a the really important intelligence operation. Um, Ali is a school administrator in Lebanon, and he, and he lives one life, and then he has, like, another life. Like, he had two wives that didn't know each other. Mm. He has, like, a double life. And he'd been doing it for 25 years, and his brother Yosef is helping him do it. There's Ziad Jara, according to the official 9-11 narrative. And hey, you can throw the, the official 9-11 story out the window, but you're throwing this out with it. The official hijacker pilot of Flight 93 is apparently Ziad Jara, who is the cousin of Ali al-Jara in Lebanon. He comes from a family of Mossad spies. That is a really weird thing to include in an official story if you're going to just construct and fabricate an official story from nothing and from scratch to implicate Saddam Hussein. That's a really weird thing to include. And it goes even further than that, guys, because apparently he also has an uncle, and that's Asam Al-Jara, and Asam Jara is older, but he was also involved with intelligence services. He was coordinating with the Israelis, the Libyans. He did operations in West Germany. He had aliases and was living like double, triple lives. And he was even connected with uh, terror organizations of that time, of that generation, that before, be before bin Laden was like the guy, right? So 
Ziad Jar is the official hijacker pilot of 9-11. He's an official 9-11 hijacker, and he just happens to come from a family that's connected with intelligence services, multiple countries, and terror groups going back decades. I'm sorry, but if like to begin with, look, you should have just made them all Iraqi, but you're also going to make Ziad Jara one of them if you're fabricating the whole thing? That's a really weird way to go. And I mm -hmm. wonder how somebody can do the gymnastics to make that a conspiracy. But it's not a common meme. Hani Hanjour couldn't fly is a common meme. Muhammad Atta uh, was, uh, his passport was found in the, in the rubble. It's a false meme. Common meme, they're both false memes. It should be a way more common meme that, look, hey, there's something really peculiar about the hijackers. We should actually mm. be like looking into these people. Look, they're not alive. That was a case of mistaken identity. There's other people that have similar names mm. that are not these same people. They don't look the same. You can tell they're not the same person. Except for, why is Ziad Jara connected with 9-11 on top of what we've already addressed, which is all this information about a massive Israeli intelligence operation in the United States on the doorstep of 9-11, following all the hijackers. And then you've got a guy who just happens to come from a family of Mossad spies in the Hamburg cell. Hmm. I don't know what to make of that, but I think that's the, that's like right where we need to be with the truth movement, asking what's going on with that and trying to figure out a good answer instead of asking for the 85 cameras that probably don't show the plane. Instead of talking about how there could have been a missile because one person thinks that maybe there was a missile, but Hundreds of other people never saw it. I think that's where we need to get to. If we can ever break out of the funk of talking about how the airplanes were suspicious and we don't think there were hijackers. And I hope I conveyed that point well enough. It was brilliantly done. And just to add, in the evening of September 11, 2001, almost, almost immediately, the neocon faction of the Bush administration was blaming Iraq for the attacks. Not bin Laden, not, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda. That was the media. But Richard Pearl and Paul Wolfowitz and Douglas Fight were already blaming Saddam Hussein for the attacks and Iraq for being part of the attacks. The only thing missing was that uh, Iraq never had any commiseration with bin Laden or Al-Qaeda ever at any point. So they had to lie to do it. And why I brought up the policy, foreign policy guidelines earlier is to show you the connection of how they wanted to blame Iraq for everything from 93 to 9-11 itself and the countries behind it. Well, it was the dual U.S.-Israeli citizens involved with the foreign policy uh, government under the Bush administration. And almost uh, right away, you had the anthrax attacks that were blamed on al-Qaeda and Iraq. You have the torture of Sheikh Ibn al-Libi, a militant that was captured. He was sent to Egypt where they do torture and under duress of torture, blamed Iraq and al-Qaeda for the attacks on 11, as well as Israeli intelligence, again, popping up saying that there was a meeting in Prague with al-Qaeda, Mohammed Atta, of all people, procuring chemical weapons and whatnot. With this information, the Secretary of State Colin Powell goes before the United Nations Security Council and then overwhelming agreement to invade Iraq. I mean, to invade Iraq. 
On top of this, you have the invasion of Afghanistan. And everything changes from here, Sean. With the intelligence that we had all throughout the 90s, up until then, that was ignored, is now acted on when it comes to Iraq and Afghanistan. And just to make my point even clearer about everything that we mentioned today regarding this video about intelligence and that the 9-11 Truth Movement's admission that the 9-11 Commission Joint House Inquiry could never be believed. Here is more proof showing you that it was the Joint Inquiry that states that all this information was known to the intelligence services. Watch this video in its entirety and how much information was not only known to the CIA, but also to the federal government. And I've prepared a chronology, which uh, I'll share with all of the members, um, which just to summarize, go back a few years before her beginning of the story. In January of 96, when the CIA created a special unit to focus on bin Laden, in February of 98, when bin Laden issued a public fatwa authorizing and promoting attacks on U.S. civilians anywhere in the world. May 1998, in a press conference when bin Laden says he's going to bring war to America. In June 1998, when the intelligence community obtains information from several sources that bin Laden is considering attacks in the U.S., including Washington and New York. August 1998, when the intelligence community obtains information that an unidentified group from the Middle East are going to fly an explosive-laden plane from a foreign country into the World Trade Center. September 1998, when the intelligence community obtains information that bin Laden's next operation could possibly involve flying an aircraft loaded with explosives into a U.S. airport. October 1998, when the intelligence community obtains information that al-Qaeda was trying to establish an, uh, an operative cell within the United States. The fall of 1998, when the intelligence community obtains information concerning a bin Laden pilot, uh, plot involving aircraft in New York, Washington uh, areas. And then in December 1998, when uh, we, uh, as we heard yesterday or the day before, when DCI Tenet uh, pro provided some written guidance to presumably everybody in the CIA declaring that the United States is at war with bin Laden and al-Qaeda. That's December 1998, before the story begins. The spring of 1999, when the intelligence community obtains information about a planned al-Qaeda attack on the United States government facility in Washington. August 1999, when the intelligence community obtains information that bin Laden has decided to target for assassination the Secretary of State and uh, Secretary of Defense and the DCI. December 1999, when Ahmed Rassam is arrested as he attempts to enter the United States in the state of Washington from Canada with chemicals and detonator material, his intended target is Los Angeles Airport. December 1999, when the DCI communication to CIA employees warns a mounting threat of al-Qaeda attack to U.S. interests abroad and in the United States, urging them to do whatever is necessary to disrupt bin Laden's plans. That's the background. I would submit to you that even with all that information, that that should have been enough to, like I said, tighten security in regards to immigration, tighten security at the FAA, and basically tighten everything when it comes to 
the aviation industry, the immigration industry, to put a watch list on terrorists and whatnot. But none of this happened. And of course, when one is confronted with this information, Sean, conspiracies about. Did they want this to happen? Did they know this was going to happen? And we don't know it for sure. You know, I always go back to that famous quote that you know about with E. Martin Schatz, on belief versus knowledge, where you're allowed to believe anything but to know nothing, because with knowledge, you can act on it. And this is the paralyzation. This, to me, this is the essence of the Nightmare Truth movement. For years, they propositioned no hijackers, no planes. They believed this. They believe all types of certain things. Judy Wood space beams melting the towers. Nuclear devices planted in World Trade Center. No plane attack at the well, at the Pentagon. No plane attack at Shanksville. Heck, no planes. Holograms. You can believe whatever you want, but that's where you're staying. You're stuck there. You can't act on it. In other words, you, you know, it goes back to a point you made earlier about going to court. And if you go to court with that stuff, you're going to be seen as a coup. And you'll be thrown out, just like what happened to April Gallup in 2011, frivolous lawsuit, because she sued bin Laden and American Airlines, even though she doesn't believe a plane at the Pentagon. So all of this that we talked about today, and we left out a lot, all of this that we left today is for the public record. It's not something that we made up. This is what's known to the public, but never brought up, not just in the Limit Truth Movement, but by the national media. Or even by the old right, our friends of the truth movement, right? In fact, it's a very select few people, and yourself included. And what we're up against, as we wrap up here, you know, what we're up against is, like I always said, a war on two fronts. A war of against disinformation from the very people who are supposed to be on our side. The Night Limit Truth Movement. Now, I'm not, this is not a condemnation of the whole movement, but the large percentage of them are fringe conspiracy beliefs that are getting in the way of information that we talked about today. And also a war, most important, is a war for information to release more information from the federal government. And we got that in the last year through the catastrophic documents, through Operation Encore. The only good thing about the Biden administration was Executive Order 14010. The, the Operation Encore Files, the follow-up to the pent bomb investigation that showed that there was Saudi intelligence helping with Khalid al-Bin Hazmi in California. The counter-struggle document goes even further. It says not only that, but there's also foreign intelligence that we're running an illegal operation from the CIA, as you stated before. It's the questions that we had suspected are now answered. The only thing missing now is the Israelis, right? Because there's very few information for good reason. But we have the Gerald Shea memo for that. None of this, Sean, is talked about and or acted on. And so, you know, as we wrap up here, you know, uh, there are times where I, I, I do say I have to admit that I, I just want to say the hell with it. I, you know, quit. But you, as you well know, recently, there was a friend of mine who basically said, everything I'm doing is fruitless. Nobody cares anymore. And my answer to this and I'll let you talk about your your points, is that tell that to the Guantanamo detainees who were, were not charged for anything, who were tortured for 16 years. I interviewed two of them, Mohammed Aoud Slahi and Mansour Adafri, and the stories they told me were horrifying. Tell them that 
it's 20 years, nobody cares. Tell that to the 2,996 victims, families, and loved ones who lost loved ones at the World Trade Center Pentagon in Shanksville, who were on those planes, who were in those buildings. Tell them it's 20 years, nobody cares. Nobody cares anymore. And yeah, I got my own problems. You know, I, I'm a manic depressive in sorts. I'm very, you know, unemotional. But I, I do care about this issue because it involves not just us, it involves everybody. It involves our future. 9-11 is a ripple effect of all that. And I do want to care. I, I do want to, I care about the truth. And this is the reason why I open up viral media because I want to, even though it's small, I do want to, I do want to properly inform the public about what is happening in our name, especially the history lit up to 9-11. And so I just want to get your closing thoughts on this. Well, it is disheartening to approach yet another anniversary of the event where folks are still saying the same thing that they said in 2007, if they're saying anything at all, because a lot's changed since 2007 and we have a way better argument than we used to. So it is disheartening. And I suppose my thoughts to wrap up where we're at today and where we may be headed because the question is, is this going anywhere? That's the question, right? Mm. Well, you know, a lot of innocent people have been affected by this event, but it's so much bigger than just that event. That event is, is practically a symptom of a condition. 9-11 is not the ailment. It is like a symptom of a condition. And many, many people who probably do not deserve to be pelted with white phosphorus or, 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 or get cut apart or shot down or blown up with improvised explosives. There's, there's so many situations that are happening at the same time as 9-11, at the same time as what led to it, the same time as what came after. There's so much money being wasted behind this whole issue. There's so many people that are being outright manipulated to their death because they're going to join the army and go to Iraq and then die. Mm. There's some really, really heartbreaking stories about war and terror. And uh, it's not getting any easier to live in this economy here in the United States. All of this is just symptoms of this condition. And there are some people who have it worse than you imagine. Whatever we're suffering here in this room and in this audience, guarantee somebody's getting it worse. Mm -hmm. Somebody, so, Somebody's getting tortured to the point where they can't even sit on their own ass anymore. You know what I mean? There's like really, really grim shit going on. So probably... I have to only speculate because I haven't talked to them. I haven't met them. These people are out there, but I don't know them personally. I think probably a lot of these innocent people that are suffering as a result of what this condition is that causes symptoms like 9-11 and everything that led up to it and everything that followed, they want the world to be better. And probably a lot of them don't have a way to do it. I'm sure that they would appreciate a better path forward 
for example, a Palestinian child who sees no way out and is his only option is to become a terrorist. I'm sure that everyone wants some way forward that is not going to contribute to the pain and suffering. And as I say with my co-host Darren Harvey at Beyond Ground Zero podcast, and I say to other people when I have heart to heart, the victims of 9-11 still have not been answered for. They, there isn't a final, there isn't a summation that is sincere, that is complete after this event. Because all we've uncovered is more and further and even more grim and uncomfortable questions. We haven't seen the answer for all of this. It's not that somebody across the ocean hates us for our freedoms. It's not the answer. And it's also not that some insane dictator needs to be taken out of power. That's also not the answer. And it doesn't address the condition. This is all symptomatic. So it's the least that we can do as people who are aware and people who are concerned to make this information available, to make this information understandable, and to allow our fellow citizens and humans to get together, stop killing each other, definitely, and, and, and try to find a path forward which does not exacerbate the issue. And one way could be to find some real answers for 9-11, because we've asked some very deep questions in this conversation that we have maybe some speculative options that could be answers. We're not 100% sure about some of these answers. But the more we keep answering, the more we keep asking these difficult questions, the better we're going to get, the closer we're going to get to the truth. That's what everyone in this movement says that they're after. But for me, I think that uh, what we got to do is not just ask questions, but it's time to start accepting answers. It's time to stop rejecting answers if the answer is sufficient. And then we can move forward because this is not the conversation that's happening in the truth movement today, at this hour, at this minute. This conversation is not happening in the truth movement. They're cheerleading about Building 7 right now. Where can people find your work, Sean? Where can people contact you if they want to? Uh, well, I'm Sean Russell. Um, I do a uh, podcast with uh, associate and co-researcher Darren Harvey. It's called Beyond Ground Zero. It's currently hosted on my Odyssey page, Sean Russell. I'm also on YouTube under the same name. Uh, you can contact me via Twitter. Uh, my handle is SKRussellAK. Um, I'm also on Facebook, VK, and Instagram, all under the same name. And uh, anybody that's interested in reaching out and having some of these difficult conversations, uh, please contact me. I'm looking forward to hearing from any of you. Same goes for me. I'm, I'm very available to anyone that wants to have a conversation as well. And um, Sean, we covered a lot of ground and we left a lot 
off the table as well at the same time. But I feel that uh, a conversation like this is due, given the proper respect uh, by those who you would think would bring up the conversation without even being asked. And yet it's continually been ignored. And um, I, I really cannot thank you enough for being a part of it. Uh, and thank you very much for coming on. Well, you're welcome, Adam. Thank you for having me. And it's great to talk about 9-11. Uh, a lot of people have forgotten and they're on to some other thing, probably regarding their personal health. And they're not doing anything to deal with something that we've got right in front of us. And every generation that misses the ball on this, it's just going to it's going to continue unless some unless the public is motivated to, uh, you know, look at it. It's uncomfortable. I don't like it. I'm not doing this for my health, guys. But it's right there and it's staring right back at you all. If you want to commemorate the 22nd anniversary of September 11, 2001, try start asking the right questions. This is Adam Fitzgerald from The Darkened Hour, and I'll see you in the next episode. Have a good night, everybody.